<laughs> yeah, and especially once you start adding the moth, the mafia names. Exactly. Once we get into the Wu Gambinos period, it's pretty much crime and punishment level. So, it's we, we don't have we don't have Christian on here to do so, to do an analog like we did on the Three Six Mafia episode, <laughs> where like slided Trotsky. Uh, here's why Raekwon is actually. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh! Brothers Karamazov thing with Ghostface and Raekwon. That an audiobook would be hilarious. I mean, Raekwon, later period Raekwon is pretty much like listening to a bad audiobook narrator. Yeah. <laughs> like, what was that album where he had the weird, like, AI voice that was like, good afternoon, Raekwon, or whatever? That, like, a luxurious international art, a.k.a. Fila. That's where <laughs> I we're blocked that one out. Up the acronym. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. Yeah, and, and no one would ever mistake Fila for uh, in, in luxurious art. No art yet. Borrowed Time Podcast. I'm Patrick Patrick on RYM. If that is pronouncing it correctly, I'm not Patrick A. I've gotten that though. I do have people on Soulseek who ask if I'm both French or Spanish, and not in a complimentary way. Um, joined as all as mo- joined as most times by Caleb Optimal Audio on RYM. Joined for the first time in a very very long time to the point where I can't remember the last time we had you on what the topic was by uh, Marshall Marsbart on RYM. Um, our second published, can I, can I, the published author thing, can I say that? Because you do mention it on your Substack, I believe. Yeah, right? go, go nuts, I think. Yeah, yeah because uh, we have our second published author after, uh, well, Sophia was published in the liner notes of a German artist, and you will be uh, publishing a 33 and a third book in the near future, I believe, correct? That's, uh, that's absolutely correct. Comes out uh, this year. In the top in of October. Crop Rock. Krautrock, all right. Speaking of, I will refrain from a hacky German reference back to Sophia there. So I'll, I'll, spare. <laughs> I'll leave that one to Ryan or something. But uh, congratulations on that. Team doing big things as always. So we will not Thank be discussing Krautrock this week. We'll be discussing, um, well, if you thought the Gucci episode was excessive, we have another two-parter that might be equally, if not more excessive, as we'll be going into... I think this is the first time in a long time we've done, I guess, will be a canon artist discography dive. Because mm-hmm. I guess most people that are Gucci canon, that's their fucking problem. We'll be covering the RZA, the Jizza, 
old dirty bastard, Raekwon the chef, Ghostface Killer, you got Inspector Deck, um, Capadonna. Yeah, yes, I, most <laughs> most importantly, Capadonna. Before I'm, did that, was that all of them? Did I get everybody? Master Killer. Yeah, yeah, the Wu Tang Clan will be covering, and at least one all-time classic album. One album you could consider to be up there, at least in his lane for what it is as a great album. I think we'll probably all agree on that. Although I think we might differ on the specifics. And then for an all-time classic group, I think that they probably don't have an all-time classic group discography. But we'll get into the details there. So. Yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll just leave my cards out on the table for Wu-Tang Clan. I think it's weird because I would consider them rap's greatest group. And yet, on a, from a discography level, you could only consider that um, you could only consider them that if you could include their solo albums. Because from a group perspective, like I just think it's pretty awful for the most part, to be honest. Um, I, it's worse than Nas's discography, for example. Uh, the The trajectory is akin to Snoop Dogg where it's like one classic album and it just sort of patters out. Um, and like from, from, a, from a purely group dis- uh, discovery point of view, I don't think that they're comparable to that of like Public Enemy, BC Boys, or De La Soul, for example. But from a sheer talent perspective, absolutely. Yeah. I guess I'll... Oh, go ahead. Well, I mean, on the topic of groups, but sorry, Patrick. Um, on the topic of groups... This is something I always thought about. So you guys, I imagine, wouldn't consider something like Outcast a group, because um, it's, it's only two. It, it's only two, yes. And, and, there, and there even is, then, Outcast has a better discography as well. Well, of course, and that's yeah. I think because one, if you start putting, if you put them in any group conversation, I actually think it messes up the group conversation for everybody else, because there's a lot of like variety sonically. But with only two rappers on most of the songs, I, I never, I never considered them a group. Even though they're some, some of my, made some of my favorite rap of all time, but I never, I never, uh, I never thought of them as a group personally. Just no, because I, you know, everybody I else. Like the, I like the delineation between group and uh, duo. I, I, I like that. So. Well, I mean, I guess you could consider them a group if you expanded a little bit to like Dungeon Family Collective with the production and the features, but like they're a rap duo for sure. Like in terms of, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't think people, I don't think when you say Outcast, people include like the like the production, like organized noise production in there, or like a big Gip feature, like or a Sleepy Brown hook. Like people don't think of that when they think of Outcast. They think of Outcast, they just think. Ray and Big Boy. So, or, or like, because yeah, you know they're not going to lump them with Goody Mob, um, just yeah. because you know those, those two, while they overlapped, were still doing their own thing. Although, that, and now that I, I I got thinking, that would have been really cool in like '96 to hear an album, a collab album, Outkast and Goody Mob. That would have been, that would have been cool. But yeah. Um, also, this is of nothing but i just wanted to department of correction thing i'm going to start maybe doing a correction segment in the vein of possibly the uh, rambling about hamilton segment a segment i'll bring up and then drop due to unpopularity within a few episodes <laughs> but um but i need to cor- like constantly be making corrections for all the people that i you know misidentify and misgender whatever stuff shout out to little white but um on the cloud episode that i'm sure nobody listened to we make re- I know, I'm, I'm, this is actually important because i'm going to make reference to this point that was made not necessarily the clown stuff but um 
I make reference to the Mac Miller lawsuit of the early 2010s in that period of time because Wyatt was talking about how on call-out culture there was a period where people, where producers were afraid to sample stuff. And there was just like all this live instrumentation where you tried to make stuff that didn't use samples or sounded like it was sample used live implementation, live implementation, live instrumentation on it. And mm -hmm. I referenced Mac Miller, Lord Infamous lawsuit. What was wrong with that sentence? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Shout out to Vanessa, who actually sued Mac Miller. And yes. I, I like the alternate timeline where Lord Infamous gets a time machine and sues Mac Miller for a sample. So yeah. that is my correction for this episode. For anybody who listened to the ICP episode. That would have been hilarious, though. Yes. <laughs> that would have I'd been... like Infamous would have been cooler with Mac. Yeah, Mac Mac would Mac shows up and he's got a DJ Paul hat on. That would I mean, there's some stuff on his some of his some of his Larry Fisherman stuff is weird enough that it has you can hear some DJ Paul influences on it. Some of the stuff on faces sounds a little bit Memphis influence. So you can see the crossover there, Mac. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, the but then he he would have started doing like Vlad TV segments with him. So it wouldn't have it wouldn't have worked out. I don't think. <laughs> But anyway, uh, I, I only thought of that because I was going to say organized noise. And I was when I said organized noise, when I was trying to make the point about outcasts, I was actually about to say organized confusion. And that was like, wait a minute, that's not right. And I actually caught myself, but that reminded me of that slip up. Anyway, so yeah, in terms of group discographies, I would, I think I'm going to defend more stuff than possibly either of you, especially because we already know how everybody feels about eight diagrams. But yeah. I think there's only one classic in there, whereas other groups that you would say have less influence and are less good have more than one classic in their discography. If, if you consider organized confusion a group, you could say that they mm. probably do cl more classics than Wu-Tang, arguably. Or at least didn't didn't taper off with the severity of like Wu-Tang's highest highs compared to what their, their you know, ending well, discography ended up being as a group. That's the big problem is that their fall off was so pro protracted and dramatic that it kind of colors how like it was public protracted and dramatic. Also, Marshall, you said that about you have to consider the solo work, which we will be doing in part two. I mean, strictly group stuff. And when I say group yeah. stuff, I mean, the major solo albums, we will give token mention, like maybe lightning roundish stuff too. At a certain point, RZA decided he was going to, cool Keith it and just start putting out stuff under the Wu-Tang name, call them Wu-Tang albums. And they're not really, uh, it's like when, you know, cool Keith puts out an ultra magnetic album and it's just him and maybe Tim dog shows up on one song or some shit. I don't know. And then it's just cool Keith rapping about peeing in people's hair again, that sort of thing. That's not really an ultra magnetic album. That's kind of what RZA does with the Wu-Tang stuff after about eight diagrams. There is one in the mid-2000s, Wu-Tang versus the Indie Culture, I'd like to maybe talk a little bit more about. It's still not a proper Wu-Tang album, but I think it's kind of interesting in the overall um, you know, perspective. But generally, we're just going to keep it to the canon major albums. And there's less to say about each one as we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, you, you just... We'll get to it, but it did, it did shock me listening to... Saga continues for the for like the first time the other day, the the like, oh so Jizza just doesn't no no Jizza like <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah yeah we'll, at we'll a certain point I don't I, like the, it seems 
even from like an album perspective, like it seems like they don't even like each other anymore. Uh, and you can tell this by like the absences of certain key rappers among certain albums, which really to their detriment, right? Because then you get more Capitana, for example, or whatever the case might be. And that, that just hurts their discography. Although I would argue that not getting as much jizza later on is not necessarily the detriment you might think it is. <laughs> no, no, yeah, more of more of just a, a indicator of the, the the group's feelings as a whole. Like I didn't, I, I won't get into it, but I I, I, I yeah. thought get there I imagine we get. Had, yeah, we'll get there when we get there. Well, we might as well. well if you want to start at the very beginning, I'd like to direct you to our baby pictures episode, where the very beginning, you know the. Bobby Digital. Before there was Bobby Digital, there was Prince Rakim, and he all the ladies loved him. And then there was also the genius, and he wrote his lyrics in a quill pen. And uh, he was well, the ladies. The ladies didn't love him so much, but so they both got really. They did not do so successfully commercially, and they got together on Staten Island, uh, which was also known as Shaolin, with uh, seven other MCs. Well, really six. Uh, Killer came later, and. We ended up with Enter the Thirty Six Chambers, Enter the Wu Tang Thirty Six Chambers, which pretty pretty damn good album, I would say, pretty influential album. Um, Marshall, do you have any more insights um, on? Well, actually, you know, let's start actually different. I would say, what was your first exposure? Like, I assume this is everyone's first exposure to Wu Tang, right? Was this album? Yeah, but I, I like knew their name for so long, just seeing their that icon or T shirts or just hearing people say the words Wu-Tang or like Wu-Tang ain't nothing to fuck with. Um, that by the time I actually got around to listening to 36 Chambers, like I had known about them for years. But yeah, this would have been my starting point. Uh, yeah, the, the, basically I had the same, the same reaction. Like I knew who, I knew who Wu-Tang were, but I was probably, what would I have been? I want to say I was like a f- freshman in high school maybe maybe an early sophomore um when i was just you know you do the whole you know greatest uh because i was i was very up to date with contemporary hip-hop at that point it was like the genre i listened to the most um at that point i think i was about like you know 15 years old but you do the whole like best rap albums ever and you know it, it is near the top of every list you know from from any major publication so it quickly became a I have to listen to this sort of album in the same way that in Illmatic was and a lot of the classic New York and West Coast stuff that those lists would uh, champion. So I listened to it, and the first listen, I didn't know who was who, um, which I think is actually one of the one of the beauties of the album um, that I'm sure we'll get into. But I didn't know what they were saying, but I knew that I loved it. Uh, it, it was pretty instantaneous. I thought all the sampling was cool as hell, the, the kung fu stuff. Yeah, so all of that was my first uh, my first exposure to Wu-Tang. And then I think I skipped every other group album and just listened to Cuban Links. But that's a <laughs> that was that was my initial uh, exposure. Yeah, I've kind of shared on the podcast before. A lot of my initial hip-hop listing was my brother would drive me around places and he'd play stuff like that. And so he played a lot of... He played this album a fair amount alongside Outkast, and that's how they became my first, you know, favorites in the genre. And I distinctly remember him playing Method Man and saying, this is the song where Method Man takes over as the leader of the Wu-Tang Clan. And so 
I remember, like, I've also um, stated more in reviews than on the podcast that I, when I was growing up, I also used to think that every album was like a movie and it had to have like a plot or a narrative to it or whatever. So that kind of appealed, like, I think that's why this appealed to me coming from like that rock listener, like, you know, childhood perspective. Um, because it feels like it really does feel cinematic in that sort of way. You have characters with the sound clips, you have like what feels like a plot. If you're just kind of like listening to it for the first few times, like it just, it feels very colorful and cinematic in that sort of way. Even if it's not like a concept album with like a proper narrative that way, like, I don't know, like fucking I Phantom by Mr. Lift or Mr. Lift, Mr. Lift or Prince Among Thieves. There just feels that sort of way, like, between where Rizzo's pulling a lot of the sounds from the Shaw Brothers stuff, like the Shaw Brothers cinematic stuff, and and the way the characters are, like the rap personas are all pulled from between kung fu movies and comic books, like Tony Stark, obviously, it feels like that felt very appealing to like a younger listener like me. And also in terms of coming from like a more rock background, you have stuff like Shame and Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with, which has that sort of public enemy crossover rock appeal while not being like corny, like you know, new metal type shit. Sorry, Wyatt. Um, yep, there's and, there's definitely uh, some guitars on the album as well to help uh, to help listeners. Well, and what's funny is before I heard the full album on my own, like I'd heard it piecemeal again, and my brother would play and stuff, and I mainly remember Method Man, Shame, and uh, Clan in the Front. And uh, Wu-Tang Clan ain't none to fuck with, which I, of course, love because it had fuck as in the refrain in the title and being like a third <laughs> world, that was cool as shit. And I had to go around saying fuck to myself all the time for like a real badass. Uh, so those were the songs I pulled mainly from that listening. But before I actually bought the album and heard it on my own in high school, I believe junior year of high school, uh, the two songs I pulled off of Napster back in the day were um, I Can't Go to Sleep off the W, which I remember from a, write a particularly convincing write-up in either Spin or Rolling Stone is it's like the best song, which it is. We'll get there when we get there. And uh, the System of a Down version of Shame off Loud Rocks, which uh, was a corny new metal crossover thing. <laughs> uh, Incubus and Big Pun doing I Don't Want to Be a Still Not a Player. <laughs> <laughs> which I also played a lot of back in the day. Um, I actually like, still like that System of a Down song, even though it's goofy as hell. And you can debate all day whether or not Surge has... Uh, pass for saying all the words and saying the whole ODB part as he does. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, like that's just a point to how well that crossed over to that is um, the most successful song on there, I would say, which is just a point to how it crosses over to a rock audience. Also, if I recall back in the day, um, one of the things that kind of contributed to the fracturing of the group was that they toured on Lollapalooza. Um, was it? It was no, I don't know if it was like they toured on Lollapalooza. They definitely did, or they did a tour with Rage, I think it was. And that was one of the things that, like, RZA was really keen on that a lot of the other members weren't. And, like, there was a lot of tension on that tour where they were, like, you're trying to sell us, like, a white audience, basically, and you're compromising our ideals. And if I recall that, that was from one of the – I think that's been mentioned by, like, Ghost and Ray in interviews, possibly around eight diagrams. Uh, and I think RZA might address it in one of the uh, – one of his books, which are also good reads but also very goofy if you can picture RZA writing a book called The Tao of Wu. That's pretty much what you get. Uh, it's like half-cooked RZA philosophy and um, also kind of autobiog autobiographical stuff. Uh, the first, the Wu-Tang Manual book is better because it has more song uh, song histories in it. So that's probably better if you're more into the music stuff. I wanted to talk about the books a little bit on the episode, but I figured you guys aren't going to read those. And 
I'm not going to force anybody to read RZA trying to write a philosophy book. Although, speaking of goofy RZA shit, and then I swear to God we'll get to the fucking album. I just want to say, I hope that we can get Wyatt somehow put the RZA Crash Beat a Guitar Center as the intro to this episode. <laughs> Have you seen the video of RZA crafting a beat at Guitar Center? No, I did not. I've never seen You that. need to look that video. <laughs> you need to look up the video of RZA. And I don't know if it's on YouTube because it gets pulled all the time. Possibly, I think RZA keeps dmca it. But look okay. up a video called RZA Crash Beat at Guitar Center. <laughs> Okay. Yes. I'll do it right after. Yes, do it right after so you can you can comment on it on part two. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, it does not surprise me that Rizzo wanted to do the Lollapalooza stuff because I think one of the worst lines in any Wu-Tang album is this stupid line about Coachella. Like, he clearly loves the festival circuit. Yeah. Anyways. Mm. Right, so. So that's, our, that's I guess, all our Wu-Tang background covered. So 36 Chambers. By far their best album, um, I guess... Anybody want to take the floor on this first? I feel like I've been eating up a lot of oxygen here. Uh, oh, yeah, I just, sure. Um, I think what's really impressive to me about this album is that in a very short, relatively short run time, uh, 12 songs, like it establishes what, one, the group's uh, mythology, right? Like it talks, to, it does the Kung Fu samples, it it establishes each group member um, individually, even if they don't get a solo spot, but you get to see their personas. And then, you know, it does that in just 12 songs, whereas most other rap albums around this time would have done it in like 20 songs if they had to with plenty of skits. But there's no there's no bullshit, really. Like, all the skits are absolutely phenomenal. Um, the 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 kung fu samples like the one that opens the album they just it just pulls you into this insular world and makes you want to be part of it and then the other ones like the one that opens um, method man they're just so funny um and uh yeah i i classic album i probably should have given it five stars on radio music i i think i made a comment about how i prefer three the the ghostface killer solo albums and i i don't know if that's true anymore i think this one is just so tight um, you also get the sensitive songs. You get a sensitive side of um, Wu-Tang Clan that you don't really see as the, the um, discography goes on. I feel like Cream and Tears are just absolutely devastating and so good as well. Yeah, that was my biggest takeaway from from re-listens. I mean, this is it's not something that I needed to re-listen to that much, but for whatever reason, like uh, Tears really really hit me. I, I love the like you know the. The, the sample the after laughter comes tears bit on the on the hook that definitely uh definitely resonated your point about method man uh the method man skit marshall i couldn't do it because i'm not i don't have like the the voice but someone should just came on and, and intro this episode with i'll fucking i'll fucking put your nuts on the dresser and hit it with a spike bat or like whatever. I like the, I mean, the feed me, feed you and feed you. Feed me. <laughs> I love it. What makes, but to Marshall's point about the skits being funny and effective, what makes them so effective also, it's like in that setting, everybody in the group, it's like you're sitting around in the studio and everybody's just like telling jokes and then they just put it on record. Like that was everybody's laughing at the the absurdity that they're all trying to one up each other with you know the methods of torture. So I I, I always found that like so hilarious, and then it gets into like also one of the best songs on the on the album. And I I mean I wasn't around at the time, but at the time that song and his performance on like you know shame and, and other songs. I mean 
had people thinking that Method Man was like the the star of the group. So for, it, it would have made good. me believe it for sure. Like Method Man, I think is is the star of the album. Um, yeah, Ghost for Beast sure. Kill is kind of weird on the album. He, it sounds like he's sort of figuring out what, what will make him unique. Like his first verse on the album on Bring the Ruckus, uh, it's like it's good. But it's not really what's good for Ghostface, you know what I mean? There's none of that like naughty storytelling sort of thing. Whereas Method Man's performances on Shame, especially Shame, has like one of my favorite like little one-liners where it's like, first I'm gonna get you, once I gotcha, I gotcha." I think that's just absolutely like that's phenomenal. Um, and then with the solo spot, like I would have believed it. And then like two years later, it's like, no, he's not even in the running for top three anymore. But on this album, absolutely, I would have believed he's the best one. Well, I like to go to the point that both of you made. I like what Caleb said about how it feels like you're in the studio and they're cracking jokes because, like, between the skits and just the feeling of, like, cypher competition, which there'd be that same feeling on Forever, but it would be different and it would be less fun. Like, there's definitely that in the studio, like, camaraderie feeling that's the same sort of thing you get out of, like, maybe like a screw tape sort of, where it's just like you're in there, you're just chilling. It's just like, very laid back it's laid back but there's, there's also like there's sort of like a feeling of ten, like i don't want to say menace but uh, there, there's a tension to it too because like the atmosphere like something about the beats too the way like the, the tension comes from the instrumentals i would say like some of them are relaxed but there's also i don't know they're not they're not like relaxed in the same way that Pete Rock's instrumentals are of the same time, I would say. They're not like jazzy, relaxed, smoky instrumentals for the most part. They they have like a they have like a minimalist uh yeah. aesthetic. There's a minimal bend or thump to them. Like it's something like Can It Be Also Simple? It's probably the most down tempo one. It has a mournful quality to it. And yes. speaking of mournful, what I would say to Marshall's point is I think one of the best things about it is that it does balance moods really well. You have the hype tracks, you have like Shame, Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with, Clan in the front, bring the ruckus, alongside stuff like Cream, Tears, Can It Be All So Simple? And there's complete deafness to the switching of moods and tones. It's not maudlin, it's not jarring. Like One of the things I don't like about rap hip-hop album construction, I always think about how there's this one E-40 album where it ends on a track called Tired of Selling Yola. After like 23 tracks about how he brags about how he's fucking selling cocaine and Yola, like Yola, whatever the fuck, and it ends with a song called Tired of, and it's like always so boring. <laughs> where it's just like, all you do is brag about how you're selling the shit, and then you have one track at the end where it's like, what am I doing to my community? It's like, you can stop at any time. You can fucking yeah. stop when you're tired of it now. <laughs> it's like always such a fucking formula. It's like you have your song, your club songs, your hard songs, and then like all of a sudden your you sensitive have a song. Your face sensitive, sensitive song. song. Yeah. yeah, your sensitive song about how you love your mama and your community is dying, possibly because of all the drugs that you sold in the club 10 tracks ago. And you just have the same fucking and I love you for you. I'm not person it was just the literal like the, the title tired of selling Yola. <laughs> Just it's kind of like Rick Ross having a title called Rich Off Cocaine. It's just very on the nose. Like, yeah, hundred percent. Or like you know some some Jay Z songs. But there's nothing like that on here where it just feels like it all feels completely like the structuring yeah. about. And this becomes much more apparent when you get the later on albums, which the structuring is a lot less. I would say through the W, the structuring is very good. Although I have issues with Forever's disc one structuring, especially. Um, gets a lot less smooth in the transitions and stuff. And then 
by a better tomorrow, he's completely lost it, completely and totally lost. He feels senile compared to this. But this really, if you think about it, like, can it be all sim- so simple goes into an intermission and it feels really constructed like a great cassette tape. Like, again, that also goes to the cinematic aspect of it, too. Like, you've got an intermission right in the middle of the story. And I know, again, it's not really a formal story, but you have all these little interludes, like, where the mood switches right in the middle. Like, you have that really funny exchange where Ray is giving Meth all this shit about what happened to his killer tape. And Meth, I don't know, blown through, shit happens, I don't fucking know. And then they burst in and with the news about the dude who got shot in the head. And even in that, there's a little thing, is he dead? Oh, of course he's fucking dead, he got shot in the head! Like, what the fuck do you think? Like, so... I love the one was like, uh... Was it, he's like a new, like a newborn baby or whatever? <laughs> so even in these tragic moments, there's still dark humor. It feels very human in that way. And all of this is surrounded by some of the best fucking rapping. Like, there's not a single less than great verse on here. I know, Marshall, you said that, like, his ghost face, like, still figuring stuff out, so he's not as great as he used to be. He's still great in a different kind of way. Like Absolutely, it. I didn't. I didn't mean any disrespect. I, oh, no, I do I love his first verse. Um, I think it's like a really cool, like Chuck D meets uh, Rakim sort of like. There's a and like the inventive rhymes in it. I I, I kind of fuck with it. It's a good verse. It's just if I compare that to like Iron Man, it's just like a completely different person almost. Oh yeah. And like and, yeah. and then Iron Man through to Supreme Clientele is another evolution too. It's like that's what's fascinating. I mean, one of the big arcs through this is just figuring is Ghostface figuring it out. And then eventually he does like, you know, trail off around the end, but that peak evolution all the way up to fish scale is one of my favorite rappers ever, for sure. So oh, much yeah. great, so many great verses in there. And here it's like everyone's essentially got their persona figured out, but it's still like coming from a place of general early 90s battle rapping but if you think about it no one at that time was really battle rapping in the same sort of like like no one sounded like odb ever period but you have like rizza and jizza their approaches were very unique for the style that they were doing i would say and then just like jizza would have a very short window on top i would argue just liquid swords like i think i'm gonna have some pop pretty unpopular just opinions in this episode just is probably gonna be like my punching bag more than anybody like after and a lot more nice things to say in the solo episode because i still love liquid swords but he really does start to annoy me after forever so i here, I, I i can see why yeah I, i'm not gonna like uh disagree with that part of it but here i think is a great like he has some of my favorite like one of my favorite lines on here is i don't give a fuck who you uh who knows you the whole thing on um where you from or who knows you kid like there's just like an edge to his lines here that I think was uh, his punch lines here that I think he would lose the more he try he really buys into his own genius shit. Yeah, so you think that's a really good way to describe it. He he really buys into his quote unquote alter ego of being his alter alter ego of being the genius, right? Um, yeah. But over here and on forever, it, it's 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 good. Yeah, I think he has the best verse on protect your neck. So. so what's the best verse on the album? Is it method? Hmm. Is it Method Man? And is that cheating? Because obviously Method Man's the spotlight. Like he doesn't really have to compete against anybody, and you know, or I mean, I, mean, I think uh, it, yeah, it, it's it's probably Method Man. But I do think that uh, Raekwon on Cream, you know, like could uh, could definitely be a contender just for the like. It's such an iconic verse. I feel like. Probably, I mean, what like one of his like two most famous verses? 
um, just the whole the, the whole lines of the how he brings in the the imagery, you know, the the crime side, the New York Times side. You know, I mean, very, yeah, very, very, very iconic um, stuff. So, you know, got with a got with a sick tight clan and went all out. You know, all that stuff. So, the combination made my yeah. It's like it's one of those. Make, oh yeah, great. That, that, I always love that one. Yeah, cracks and cracks and weed combination made my eyes bleed. Great video, by the way. Great video. The most like. That song and this album in general just embody such a a New York winter uh, aesthetic that a lot of these early to mid 90s albums would really like to the point where even though it's one of my favorite like 90s rap albums or at least, you know, from from an East Coast perspective, I'm not going to listen to the like the infamous OS as January. You know what I mean? Or like. It's such a the, the, these albums sound so cold and and like dark that you kind of have to listen to them at forty degrees or less. Like if it's if it's not uh, or Fahrenheit, excuse me, I don't want to confuse any other uh, any other you know, Celsius the Canadians here. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Or or just the uh, non-U.S. audiences. Um, no, but if it's not like if it's not near freezing temperatures. I'm kind of not going to. I'm not going to be in the mood to listen. And that's pretty. That's a pretty special quality. I feel like with with this this album and and other greats of this era. Yeah, like you don't put the cold vein on at a barbecue. No, no. If it's summer, and I, I've said this before on previous pod episodes, going way, way, way back. But like, once it gets a little warmer in these next few weeks, like you know, May through August or whatever, like to me that's like. That's UGK time. That's Outcast time. That's you know. That's DJ Screw. That's that's Southern. That's Southern rap. That's West Coast stuff. You know, you get fall in the winter, crunched leaves and and you know, cold temperatures and snow. That's like you know, the grimier stuff for me. But I know that not everybody thinks like that. Yeah, I agree. I agree fully. I mean, I feel like I can listen to this one more in the summer than you can maybe just because I have a lot of memories associate. Like, I agree with you fully on this one. And someone who actually does agree with you a lot and writes about it endlessly in their books about music is Henry Rollins, constantly talks about the importance of seasonal music listening. So there's somebody who's on your side. But I personally have a lot of memories listening to this one in the summertime, both my initial listening, like I said, my brother driving around listening to this stuff, and also listening to it with friends, too, in the initial times when I would first start getting away, like hanging out with friends late high school, early college. This was a very popular as it will always be, I feel like. This is one of those albums that people who are starting to break into listening to hip-hop music in general, like whatever, getting seriously into music, are going to be listening to this. Mm-hmm. Like, this is an all-time staple. Like, I really can't... This is one of those albums I just can't think of anything I would change about it, period. Yeah, even... Um, and and it, tra- it transcends eras in the sense that even if you're a listener who predominantly focuses on music from the 2010s and 2020s, you know, and, and nowadays... You're still if you're listening to this as an introduction, kind of like Illmatic. They're gonna be easy albums to to get into, even even if the sonic palette is a lot different. They just have a they just have a certain quality about them that feels, no matter how quote unquote dated the production and rhyme schemes eventually could end up becoming. I don't think that's gonna matter in terms of the overall impact and enjoyment of this album because people that come up today still couldn't 
catch the lightning in a bottle like this. I mean, this is a pretty like un unrefined, unpolished album for the most part, but they managed to make it work so perfectly. And yep. you know, people like when the next Joey Badass comes along and tries to recreate this, like I'm gonna roll my eyes. And that's the thing, is that this album is is so paramount to to what we as rap listeners think of when we think of New York, right? Absolutely. So. Is it Joey Badass, one of the actors on the Wu Tang show? Doesn't he literally recreate Wu Tang on the like show? I actually don't know that, but that would be hilarious. I should IMDb that. Um, we've, we've we've been throwing some shade his way over the last like year or so, but but kind of deserved. So I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not gonna walk any of that back. No, no, I will. I will not either. IMDb Joey Badass. Um, I will say what I speaking of it being dated and I have two other points I want to make, but I, I was surprised. I think all the other stuff that I've listened to after this sounded more dated than this album in terms of their discography. Like the further oh, I went, hundred percent. Yep. Like Wu-Tang forever would still think I'm going to have a lot more positive to say about than probably Marshall, at least still like it sounds more 1997 than it, than this sounds like, you know, the early nineties. And I feel like, this holds up better than anything else in terms of like people are going to be listening to this more than any of their other stuff. Like I feel like the lo-fi aesthetic, if you want to call it that, although it was more out of necessity than a chosen aesthetic, obviously, which is mm-hmm. going to work better. I feel like than choosing it. Um, if that makes sense, holds up better than just like of the time choices. And every time RZA tries later on, and this is probably true of any musician who tries to keep up with trends, it tries to keep up with trends. It sounds terrible. It sounds fucking mm-hmm. terrible. Uh, well, he was also late to those trends every fucking time. He would be like, "Oh, that sounds like you know relatively fresh," but it'd already be like five years old by that point. And then he'd be doing a, a pastiche about it that wasn't as good as as it was in the first place. It'd be like a double, double-edged sword that he was handling. Yeah, when I when when I use the the dated term, I think that was more of just the sense that it sounds of an era, but to me, like it's still. Like I was saying earlier, I think I think has the ability to transcend uh, that era in the same way that. Well, I know, wasn't trying. Oh no 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 yeah no I got you. I, I just wanted to badass was in fact in three episodes of Wu Tang and American Saga in 2019. He was in episode season one episode six Impossible season one episode eight Labels and season one episode ten Assassination Day as the character Rebel. So Joey Badass literally does cosplay. <laughs> Wu Tang, in addition to audibly cosplaying as any number of '90s rappers, so good job, Joey. Um, I hear he's actually quite good in it, but I still have not seen that show. Although I guess the very last thing we're going to be covering under the Wu Tang name is an EP supporting that stuff, which I'm sure neither of you guys listened to. I just nope. shoved it at the end of the yeah. It, you, you didn't miss anything. Uh, you you Ghostface rhymes about his uh, insulin shots, though, is the highlight of it. Hmm. In a typical Ghostface detail. Um, interesting did you do you guys know one thing i was uh i heard about this album years ago a long time back was that they wouldn't rizzo would make a lot of the a lot of the group like battle like rap battle and then whoever like won would get like a a verse placement on a song he uh, he said that sorry go ahead no go ahead marshall I, I thought that's how Method Man became uh, a thing. Like I, I, I think that's how I read how he got the solo spot because he won all the rap battles. It's like whoever won that one, like got 
but uh, the one and only solo spot on the album. As for like the actual individual verses, I didn't know that. I would believe it. But he, he said something to that effect. Um, again, fuzzy memory because it's been so long since I read it in the Wu Tag Manual. That is how he decided for stuff for some of the solo albums, I believe. Although there were certain solo, like I think more in terms of Takao and Cuban Links because Liquid Swords, I think he had all that stuff. Liquid Swords was a much more distinct sonic palette. Uh, I think it was between the Ghost meth and ray albums for some of those beats he decided who would get those based upon like they would fight over it essentially you know sing for your supper fight over it whatever um with swords i think that was so much on its own and also i think probably a bit of favoritism considering that they were actually family uh but i think it was also nothing on liquid swords would have fit for any of those guys like obviously we'll get to that when we get to it and i think that concept was um literal like completely literalized on human links with meth for meth versus chef mm. so that was a nod to that so yeah i think there is for sure something to that he's commented on that so and i think there was probably some resentment in the lower ranks of the group because there was definitely like a tear to the group like you know you gods not getting the same you know a tier S tier beats that you're going to be offering Raekwon in 1995. You, you God, you God didn't get the illustrious uh, ODB introducing the ghost face killer and, you know, hold it for 20 seconds. <laughs> that's, that's how we should introduce Mark. That's how we should introduce Marshall on this episode, by the way. <laughs> introduce the boss, boss. <laughs> Well, I, I could I couldn't couldn't even do the uh, Method Man voice. I'm not going to try and do the OD. I'm not Joey Badass. I'm not that good at impressions. So no, no. <laughs> but yeah, um, as far as the um, I would say that this is one of those not like they always. One of the things I lament is that they don't put out instrumental versions of albums as frequently as they used to anymore. Eight Diagrams is a great example of that, by the way. I feel like that's one of those albums that his estimation would have gone way up had they put out one. And I don't understand why they didn't, because then they were still putting out major little promo versions of stuff. Shout out to Third Strike. But um, as far this is one that I feel like would it, people would benefit from listening to, even if you don't think you would, because these beats are more complicated than they get credit for. I think there's a lot more yes. nuance in the instrumentals than <laughs> it seems like, and from a lot, then a lot of instrumentals from this time period were like a lot of Whoa. instruments from this time period were five minutes, one loop. And there's a lot of, a lot of nuance. And also in the one point I wanted to make was about the vocal mixing. When you have this many voices, like there's a lot of care taken into making sure that, that like Caleb, you pointed out that you couldn't tell who anybody was on the first listen. And I feel like that's probably true for most listeners. Like don't fucking lie. Like, it's very hard to distinguish these voices. Like, aside from, I think ODB is the only one you can really pick out of a crowd on the very, very first listen going in cold, especially if yeah. you're not a hip hop listener. Yeah, yeah. That's, 100, that's 100% accurate. Um, you made the point, actually, even if these were five minutes and a single loop, like a drum beat and a sample looped over and over and over again, it would still be exciting because you'd be hearing different voices throughout the entire thing, which gives them a leg up over. Um, you know, other rap, other rappers or duos or whatever the case might be. Um, but no, like shame, it clocks in under three minutes and I'm pretty sure there's four different parts. There's the main, da, 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 there's that, there's that main little hook. Mm -hmm. Then there's the Thelonious Monks flip. Then there's a second Thelonious Monk flip. And at a certain point, there's a new drum beat that's introduced all in, all in under three minutes. Like it's pretty astounding. Right. And 
Which one has the uh, OV right flip on it? Um, it's one of the piano. One of the piano. I want. I don't know if that's Ruckus or oh, shit. I, I promise I wouldn't read a bunch of who sampled stuff on this because I did that on the scaring the hose episode, and uh, I don't want to scare the audience by doing that again. But there's yeah. just a really advanced. I would say I don't want to be super pandering about this, but you know, Rizzo was really young when he produced this stuff, and I feel like the general sample the base of sampling he was doing on this was pretty advanced almost to the point where you could say that some of the stuff he came up with decades later seems like a real regression from the work he was doing on this album yes i would agree mm-hmm. but it also helps that he's actually doing sampling whereas later on he'd be doing live instrumentation that sounds like sampling but isn't sampling it's not as colorful it's kind of it's kind of simple and it's just it's so much better if you're yeah i mean it's yeah, Riz's Riz's arc is interesting. I feel like there's some parallels you could. I don't know. There's Riz's ambition is admirable, but I feel like there's this restless. There's a difference between being artistically restless and aimlessly pretentious. And mm. Riz skirts that line a lot. And I feel like also going back to somebody we just discussed very recently in the um, Lana Del Rey half of this Scaring the Hose episode, I think Riza's association with Tarantino might have gassed him up a bit too much about his um, artistic ambitions. Because I feel like a lot of the really poorly thought out, quote-unquote ambitious things he was doing started to happen right around the time he was really hanging out with Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Kill Bill mm-hmm. sound. And his Kill Bill soundtrack stuff is great. Like he uh curated yeah. and that's outstanding. And but then you start to think about like a lot of the fracture, like uh, taking forever to do eight diagrams, what eight diagrams ended up being. And then you have stuff like fucking Afro Samurai, which get to that. And then, you know, the, I, I would say the last truly even decent stuff Riza did on a production end was pro and even then it's all more curatorial than actual production for the most part is a uh, man with the iron fists, which <laughs> it should have been good. He directed the fucking movie. So, and he even had help on the score by um, Howard Drawson, who I'm not really familiar with, but seems like a Hollywood hand guy. So anyway, that, on a whole other that's more of a solo episode discussion but in terms of just Riz's artistic evolution how he peaked very early and that's fine a lot of people peak early and a lot of people aren't quite some half the chance or ever have the opportunity to make beats as good as this one so we forgive him and we forgive him sort of and i will say that i mean i was about to i had a transition in my pocket here but does anybody else have anything for um for 36 chambers i mean you could talk forever really you could talk forever i don't think you scratch this on the lyrics um okay who do you think has the overall meth meth has the best performance you want to say meth has the best performance yeah i think meth i i think meth and then i I would say odb just from a memorability like standpoint i feel like he i mean i could imagine listening to odb in like when it came out like i couldn't i just would have uh it probably would have blown my mind like uh, that's because he just oozes charisma that man Especially yeah. um, like on this album. He made a whole career off of a handful of verses on this. And then he got away with being able to just do whatever the fuck he wanted for the rest of his unfortunately brief time on Earth based upon this, essentially. I mean, then you have you know, a dirty version afterwards and just a handful. Mm. But this is like the really most full. This and two and it. Well, yeah, dirty version, sure. But 
this is probably the most coherent, fully thought out he's ever been on record. And that's a credit to Rizza for capturing that. And I guess this is probably the most together and lucid he was. I don't want to really speak to his personal state. That's not for me to do. But yeah, like just there's not in a traditional sense, there's he's probably in the middle of the pack, but this is still like in terms of rapping. He was never this together ever again. And you'd say he's like fame and stuff. These are technically good verses to the level that like, you know, there's probably as many technically good verses on dirty version. And there's like, he's rapping air quotes on every track on there. So think about that ratio. So, <laughs> and I love dirty version. We'll get to that again. That's a solo ep- episode discussion. Um, I would say probably meth first, Ray second, because uh, Raekwon's verses on here are super powerful. Like, I, I feel there's a gravity to Raekwon's rapping on here that he might be technically better on Cuban Links and Forever, but there's an emo- there's an emotional. Pa- I feel like he had just either gotten out of jail or was facing a jail bit on these, which kind of accounts for the way he raps on Simple and Cream. Those both feel like very uh, I don't want to say morbid verses, but he feels like he's staring something down on those verses. Yeah, very very vivid. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, which I think more more than more than anybody like out, I think his verses are the most like vivid outside of like the skits on the on the album. Like, they feel the most cinematic. Yes, and you know, Ghostface is like the heart. Ghostface will always be the heart of the group. Ghostface and RZA are like, the emotion and the heart of the group. Deck and Jizza are more of like the technical battle rapping aspect. ODB is like the raging it, mess the party guy. You got kind of shows up as like a utility play. You got in as the utility player. Killa, uh, obviously, again, he was in like he was the locked up guy. So by necessity, those two. I think you got was also locked up for one, which accounts for how his limited presence. So and Capital was not there yet. So like Capital won't Capital won't show up until um, Iron Man, um, Winter Wars, and uh, Daytona are his first appearances. So. If I have that correct, that sounds right to me. And th- speaking of peaking early, some people wish they were his last appearances. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I've debated whether or not we will cover Kappa on the solo episodes. I've decided if we're okay with that, we will cover the pillage, and then otherwise we can just clown on his album covers. Sounds good to me. Let's, yeah, let's that, that 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 works for me because I think the the pillage is definitely the the main the only one I've listened to. Right, I, I'm not going to make you guys listen to any more solo Capadonna. I'm going to I'm going to retain yeah. the threat of a so, of a Capadonna episode for Gozi. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he would. Yeah, he would. Uh, that would that would be like serving punishment for him. Well, every, every time every time he's on, he's like, "So we're doing Tupac next," and I'm like, "Well, we still got the Cap episode." <laughs> In the chamber, <laughs> but what? But what Wu Tang had in the chamber? Well, what RZA had in the chamber was a five-year plan. Everybody was going to put out their own solo effort, and then they were going to come back with a double Wu Tang forever. Not everybody got their solo album at no time. So there were a lot of reasons for this. Well, the studio flood was—I think the studio flood was '99 because that ruined Dex album. Who got their albums in? Like, I need to get the—I should probably get the document I put for you guys up. To be more accurate about this, but who or, got their albums? Would take forever. Yeah, who got their albums in between Chambers and Forever? So for sure, Ghost Ghostface, 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 Old Dirty Math. Bastard, 
Method Man, yeah, and Jizza and Genius. And I think the ones oh, yeah. that didn't get it are Deck, Massacilla, and You God. Deck, God, and Killa. Yeah, Killa wouldn't get his until 2004, no said date. The title obviously being a reference to that. Uh, you God had um, uncon- uh, uncontrolled. Su- no, Deck was uncontrolled substance. Oh, yeah. Uh, you- what the fuck was you gods called? Of course, I wouldn't remember you gods. I know it wasn't Mister Excitement because that was two thousand seven. Wait, was it Mister no. Excitement? Oh, Golden no, Arms. Gold, golden Golden Arms. Yeah. Yeah. I have not yet listened to Golden Arms Redemption. Uh, that will be for next time. Um, it kind of looks like a. Uh, oh, he's got a know, real e vibe to his cover here, wearing the fedora. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I was, this cover art is is, is something. So, so going into forever, we have Takao, which I would have at a 10. Cuban Links, which most people have at a 10. I have at, depending on the day, an 8 or a 9. Iron Man, which I have at a 10. Liquid Swords, which I have at a 10. And uh, Dirty Version, which, uh, Return to the 36 Chambers Dirty Version, which I have at an 8, but is a very important album in the Wu-Tang lore and is the only album Dirty could have made. Like, let's be yep. real. Like, that really, we'll mm-hmm. talk a lot more on the solo episode. You could have that at a one or a ten, but it's really the only solo album Old Dirty Bastard could have made. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, 100%. That is the build-up going into this. And I even remember from being 12, 13 years old, and at that point, like, pretty much only really knew hip-hop from, like, you know, the stuff I liked as videos at MTV at that point. This is, like, right about a year or two before the period where my brother would drive me around and I'd listen to it, that this was like the event album of the year. It was like this and like, you know, Biggie, Tupac were putting out, this is like around obviously the unpleasantness, quote unquote, but this was an event album for that year. And I remember it being considered to be maybe a disappointment at the time, maybe a case of overhype, maybe a case of oversaturation, even at the time. History has... I would say redeemed it, but I don't know if necessarily history has redeemed it so much as the fact that their stuff afterwards was considered to be the, this is the long fall off period. So is this a soft, is this a fall off or is it, I mean, I guess just generally what's your take on it? Was this really the beginning of the fall off? Was this just too much? Is this the, like the fucking cliche about a single album would have been just as good as chambers what like fucking get a coherent point out of my rambling nonsense here Caleb do you want to go first sure yeah I mean I think that it kind of it feels like a 1997 double album in all of the good and maybe some not so good ways um, it's definitely a, a significant step down I, I would still say I like the album um, there's obviously obviously all time classics on here um, it doesn't start that way for some reason. Pat Patrick noted sequencing. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, but there are some quintessential like New York songs on here that I think would would you know definitely still hold up. And in my, I re-listened to this actually twice throughout the week just to get a real feel because some of the songs like just there's so many. So it was inevitable that I kind of forgot how uh, some of the songs are, but. Yeah, I mean, the the best stuff on here is as good as anything they've ever done. And, you know, there's also a lot of, like, there's also some some middling stuff uh, at certain points throughout the record. But I still like it. I actually came around more on the second disc than the first disc, even though that ending run on the first disc is definitely the best part of the album, if that makes any sense. But it frustrated me how the album, like, started, like, those first, you know, 
four songs to me. Uh, I just I didn't, it was kind of like deadening the the momentum that you could have had if you just started it with like visions. But um, you, but mean, yeah. you mean starting an album with six minutes without a single Wu Tang member in sight was not a good plan. <laughs> The plan was was I don't know what was going on in the, <laughs> in the studio for that one, but yeah, that that like that was what more spoke to me. Outside of all of the, uh, they did this last album, but they really started doing the skits where it was like, "Yo, God, peace, God." It's the insert blank God, like you know, all that stuff was on was on this. So I I I, I that was funny. Um, what else did I have? some 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 observations? Oh, if this was like so, Patrick might understand this reference. In in the U.S., you know, ESPN obviously dominating. There's a lot of like sports talk, like hot take economy culture around like a lot of sports and things of that nature. So if I was like a if I was on TV doing like a Stephen A. Smith first take, you know, type hot take, and I was just like, you know, coming up after the break, did Triumph peak too early? That would be like my I'd be like my hot take. <laughs> like my hot take segment. Um obviously all time great song, but I do think it's like a the the, the best is is up front for a triumph. It's also one of the only uh true lyrical spiritual miracle songs that is actually great. But that's a whole that's a different uh topic. But yeah. Love love chunks of this album. Don't like other chunks, but I would still say it's a good album. Good album, not great. I, uh, I'll be the Debbie Downer, and I'll just say that I don't like this album. I, I just don't like what it stands for. Um, I, I, I submit that some of the rapping is very good. Um, I think Inspected Deck kills it. I think he's just doing uh, a phenomenal job in a way that makes you think, it's like, wow, these are the verses that he saved for a solo album, and you're, you're, like, he's actually like trying his best here. Um, but... I guess two points. One, I mentioned that um, Enter 36 Chambers is so blissfully short, and then this one is so excessive. So it's just completely opposite to that. Um, but it's also true in spirit. Like on Enter 36 Chambers, there's a real wooziness to the beats. We talked about the low fineness. Um, it sounds like it's being made in a basement. And here, they've graduated to an apartment complex, right? Like, and sure, that's fine, but um, it's just... Rizza just doesn't, he's not making the same beats. Um, he's not sampling with the same rigor. He's doing that live instrumentation that sounds like samples, but it's actually really, really simple. I think impossible. There's just like a single piano chord that's just banged out on the piano every like four measures. It's like, oh, great, here it comes again. It's not doing anything. It's it's not contributing any sort of atmosphere or sort of color. It's just, it's just a noise. Um, and I I really dread listening to this front to back not that i ever have listened to this front to back but just revisiting this i just um i remember liking it even less than i did the last time so that's me and i know i know i'm against the grain here and so I, like I, I don't know you guys bring me in for hot takes uh, occasionally so that's my hot take i don't think it's a egregiously awful album or anything i just don't like what it stands for i can agree with a lot of your points um in that i don't like what it stands for first of all on well, to what Caleb said about the second disc being better than the first, I agree with that because I and that actually goes with your point about not liking what it stands for because what it stands for in a lot of ways is that that intro is a lot of bullying five percenter shit, and they were kind of integrate like you don't really you get little lines on thirty six chambers that kind of allude to like you know Rizza Jizza Ghost there and I believe ODB although I would 
highly doubt his devoutness to it, but I think he claimed it were part of the, you know, 5%er sect. And, and as far as like, you know, relevant, um, satellite members yeah i also have kill a priest and hellraiser and that's also relevant too because apparently kill a priest recorded a bunch of verses for this album that were that rizza just didn't use which is a double-edged sword because to my point so they were trying to like they were integrating more and more of the five percenter stuff like there's a very infamous line when we, we'll get to this much more when we get to the solo episodes on um so Liquid Swords ends with a kill a priest solo basic basic instructions before leaving earth bible and um there's a really infamous and shitty line about wicked women on that. And then you'll have Heavy Mental by Killer Priest about a year after this, which is kind of a Doctrinaire 5% album. It's a great album, but it's also got a lot of Doctrinaire 5% or shit on it. So this one begins with Woo Revolution, which is just like, it starts off just kind of being like bragging, you know, Wu Tang's back, you know, we're going to save the world from this and that, and kind of just braggadocio. Then it just goes on and on and on with like fucking. More and more messianic five percenter, you know, dragon yaku back into the cave, and you know, yes, white people are the devil. I'm not going to disagree with that. Speaking as a white person, but it just goes forever. And then the just tone of the first album, like the last uh, four tracks on it, are "Older Gods," "Maria," "A Better Tomorrow," and "It's Yours." Out of those four tracks, "Older Gods" and "A Better Tomorrow" are very much in that vein of just thudding morality. And they're both really good tracks, but the tone of them gets really wearying. And It's Yours has some lines like that, too, even though Deck, raps, Deck and Ray wrap their asses off on that, and it's one of their best songs. So, But the tone is just um, not... It, it gets old. And in the middle of that, you have Maria, which has one of the worst Capadonna verses ever, where he, like, I can't even get in. He brags about, like, the, the Capadonna brags on that are baffling, and it's almost good sequencing to have that there to break a, the morose tone, but it's also terrible sequencing because it doesn't fit the tone at all. So you walked by, smelling like watermelon, you might make me a felon, my eyeballs swelling, my nuts start yelling. I think yeah, truly yelling. it is one of the worst verses um, on the first three. It's probably the worst verse on the first three albums. I will never forget when the first time I was around, going around with my friends playing day, um, playing Iron Man and Daytona 500 came on and we're vibing to everything. And then Capadonna comes on vocabulary, Donna talking, tell your story, walking. And then somebody pauses and is like, this guy's not very good. <laughs> Just like yeah. to let him in here. Like, so it's just bath. But the thing is, I actually, have a higher opinion of Capadonna than most people, mostly based upon the pillage. So, but Maria is brutal. And I think of that, though, that verse actually gets worse after the part you were talking about. Cause I forget, he said something about his like dick being like a puzzle piece or something. Uh, I don't know. But yeah, the second, the second disc I feel is more of, in terms of the structure of it, feels more like the first, more more like 36 chambers in terms of just getting everybody in a room and having them rap competitively against each other but even then it's less fun it just feels less fun i don't know but then it doesn't matter if it feels fun when you have tracks like triumph impossible deadly medley bells of war uh hell's wind staff and i will also say the mgm is a really good example of what would be like um well, I guess it was kind of launched on cuban links the ghost and ray cry like criminology like storytelling genre like they get a lot of mileage out of that, and that's probably the first real example of that on a proper Wu album. So, 
I don't know. There's a ton of great technical wrapping on here, but it feels comparatively joyless and colorless to 36 Chambers. Yes. Uh, I think that's such a good way to put it. It, it is joyless to me. Um, and it might be the fact that, like, if you were some of these members, you'd be pissed off. I think you'd be jealous that, you know, Raekwon and Yosei's got solo albums and you didn't. And you're just fucking along for the ride now and you feel like you're second fiddle. Um I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe there's just less of a group group atmosphere. Whereas, like on the first album, you had like a lot of parts where it sounded like the whole group was coming up for the chorus to like rap it or whatever. Here, it just feels like no one wants to be in the same room as one another. And I think there's probably something to that. Like they probably didn't like the tour situation. I don't know when the Rage tour happened or like uh, again. I should probably look this up if they did do Lollapalooza or not. But all that stuff, I feel like there was definitely the feeling that Rizzo was taking over the enterprise with like a whole, I know what's good for you guys sort of, uh, aspect, like sort of dictatorial aspect. And so there was interpersonal conflicts and it's coming across in the way that the music just feels like just less inviting than in the past, like less of a group effort. And yeah, I mean, I'm coming across harsher on it than I said. Although this is one of the two that listening to it for re-listening for homework from the podcast, it did go down. I had it as a nine before. I now have it in an eight. I was able to get more into the mindset of both being there at the time and feeling a little disappointed into it at what I would have gotten had I been a fan when 36 Chambers came out, waited for this, listened to the solo projects, and this is what I'd gotten. And also coming at it from a current perspective partially being like this is not the sort of rap album i gravitate towards as much now just it does feel a lot like caleb said triumph is super lyrical miracle and that's a bit harsh but it's also like i feel like a lot of this is kind of just like rapping for rapping's sake which i guess you could say 30 chambers is but also like there's stuff on there like cream tears can it be all can it all be so simple where there's like concepts to it too not like strictly concepts like labels would be but and then again, when you get to later Wu stuff, there's too much concept. Like by the time you get to a better tomorrow and you get to some of the quote unquote concept songs on there, it's too heavy on the concept of writing about something. So I kind of wish they'd go back to this stuff where it's just rapping for the sake of rapping. But if you're going to rap for the sake of rapping, maybe it should be more fun, feel more fun than some of the stuff on here. But it's yeah. still an eight out of ten for me. This is the most negative eight out of ten I fucking ever received <laughs> on this show. I but think you if really they had that it Sorry. doesn't feel fun maybe it's the length maybe it's the overly like of james cameron-ness to the fact that so much money i guess 1997 there you go james cameron fucking so much money at work here compared to the last one and you can see all the money on the screen with the production yeah yeah, yeah. and all, it also it just with some of the songs it kind of feels like work you know it, it feels like a job more of like more than a, a passion which you yeah. got on yeah. on on a lot of the previous you know all time classic solo material and of course the the group record. This one felt like okay, it's an obligation that we have to do this, um, which you know there are still. I mean, Marshall made a great point about deck. The deck verse on the Better Tomorrow, I believe, is probably my favorite verse on the record. Um, that that's just a, a fantastic verse, and deck sounds great on here. And it is a shame that he never really got like a he got a solo album but it was it was it was too little too late um but i think deck f functions best in this kind of role um in, in within the group role so he's showing on here um did do we, we all sorry do we all agree he has the best verse on triumph yeah i think that yeah. that's i mean that 
on a verse on an album where on an album on a song where pretty much everybody is engineered to try and one up each other, and he has the lead off. I mean, you can't really count it. Unless you count ODB, which I don't really think you can count ODB on that. He steals it with the verse everybody remembers from Obama, Socrates, philosophy. Yeah. Uh, won't do it. But yeah, you know what I mean. So everybody remembers. So, And I think this is the one you could say that, I mean, I guess we're probably going to have to pick for every album who wins the album, just given the construct of the group. I mean, Meth won the first one. I think you can pretty much say Deck wins this one, although the most interesting thing for me, I saw the two most interesting stories I would say is Deck because he's angling for he's pissed off he didn't get a solo album in theory he's supposed to be gearing people up for his solo album which obviously circumstances the studio flood and everything didn't pan out the way it was supposed to but that's why he's rapping so hard here out of a sense of hunger and also promotion so deck wins this one and you could you could argue that triumph the city and a better tomorrow are the three best bar for bar verses on here but I would say Ghost. the other story is that Ghostface is really evolving his style that he would get on Supreme Clientele. He starts it on Iron Man, and then here you can literally see him devolve it, like not devolving, um, evolving, the absolute opposite word, like from the sort of slang-heavy storytelling that he comes up with on Iron Man to the complete abstract, almost rap James Joyce type shit he does on Supreme Clientele. Like there are certain, and like the real verse that he comes up with the shit is actually on his feature verse on blackout where he has like the one about cinnamon toast crunch and everything. And it sounds like complete nonsense. And I think he said in some interview that he came up with it on Rikers Island. So I don't know where these verses are compared to when he went up to Rikers, but you can certainly see an evolution. There are some verses here that feel more at peace with the Iron Man material. And then there are some verses that are way more dense and just feel like he's throwing shit together to see how it sounds. And then you have stuff that's way closer to like Apollo Kit, like the I guess there's like to put it in the context of Supreme Clientele, there's some stuff that sounds like Malcolm, and there's some stuff that sounds like Apollo Kids. Mm-hmm. Or like uh, Nutmeg. The more abstract material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my my point about uh you know Triumph, it was obviously a little, little tongue in cheek. Obviously it's a you know, still a Still a great song and, and justifiably iconic, um, but it is just funny that it's you know it is pretty no- nonsensical uh, at points. But nothing nothing wrong with that. Um, but I just I, I do find it funny that that is you know such a such a clear point of Wu Tang and even a lot of their best stuff. They don't really they didn't really need to be saying anything. You know, there there didn't need to be a lot of, you know, bars, sun messages behind the, the the literal bars for it to sound good. And that's you know that's kind of translated. But I know that's a in year in years ago talking point that was like a uh, a common you know older versus younger generation point. But like you could just point to Wu Tang songs and be like, you guys like what were they really saying? But it still sounded good. So, well, I feel like that's this is them getting collectively full of their own shit and losing their sense of humor. And I feel like that's why it starts to feel like the fun is falling out of it. Like the W is probably their most morose, least fun album. And you can see how they're getting there from here. Like, definitely. Like, like there's also less ODB as well, which accounts for some of the less fun. I think he's mostly checked out. Yeah, for many, many reasons, ODB is not in in the building, and eventually he would physically not be in the building as well. 
And so, like, RZA's more concerned with being taken seriously as an auteur and a genius. The others are not really concerned with being part of the group dynamic before, like, that much anymore. And eventually, like, the only one with the self, the only ones with the self-aware sense of humor will be, like, Ghost and Meth. And Meth also was going through his Hollywood period at this point, too. He's got a sitcom, movie career. So there'll be a period where really only Ghostface is, like, a vi- viable, like, con- concern with, like, his actual rapping output. And to an extent, Raekwon. Although Raekwon's solo stuff would be pretty dire at this point, too. So. Mm-hmm. Did, and also, speaking of Raekwon, like, and that whole thing, did we need another skit about how they don't want anybody sounding like them? Or anyone in their crew? <laughs> we already got it. On it references the previous skit, too. <laughs> like, we yeah. told the last skit. It's like, we know. So that's why we didn't need another one. It's like, yeah, guys, we, we heard you the first time. <laughs> I, I still recommend it. If you have, I, I still recommend this. It's still probably their second best solo album, and we just shit all over it. But no, I mean it's it's still worth listening. Like like I would you know like I said I gave it like a like a seven like three and a half like I just for for the fact that I do actually think the second disc would make a good album if you just like swapped a couple songs for like the ending run on the first disc it would be like amazing. So. I do value I do value the second disc a little more, uh, but yeah, that this I think run on the second disc is not a uh, not it. <laughs> um, no, no, the last the last like three songs are not. Are you you got to take those off for? Is it everything for, after uh, Hell's Wind Staff? Pretty much, yeah. You've yeah. got uh, a very Capadonna heavy number, uh, Black Shampoo, which is uh, probably the worst method. Yeah. Of- Worst method performance. Then you have a Tekatha solo, Tekatha. I don't know how you pronounce it. And then Raekwon and essentially a glorified skit closing. Yeah. Oh, the, the 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 fact that it closes with that bullshit skit is is actually like offensive to me. I forgot that there's there's my real negative take. The the way it starts and ends. The, the this album should not. How did they let that happen? I mean, yeah. I. It's all. This was. Yeah, Wu-Tang always had a funny way, of, especially around this period. I mean, this was all endemic around the whole rap industry with the double albums and this. And I guess the whole idea was that you're giving people their money's worth. They paid their $18 in 1999 money. You got to give them the content. But content meant just a ton of skits and such. So, I mean, Supreme Clientele has one of the weirdest album closing runs of all time. And I still would give it a 10. But this isn't Supreme Clientele. So... <laughs> This is not Hell's, This album should end at Hell's Wednesday. Like yeah. that one's a good one. I, I, there's like a sleigh bell thing at the in the beat. I appreciate that. And uh, Inspector Death kills it again. Yeah, it's not a good verse. So I think that's we can pretty much wrap this one up and move on to the W, which I rem- which I for sure remember getting a negative reaction at the time. And first of all, the cover art on this sucks. I did not remember yeah. the cover art on this. Dog shit. Very, very, very lazy. Yeah. Um, I think it's aged well, to be honest. Like, I think some of the hooks are whack. But, um, like, beat-wise, they return to the sort of minimalism uh, away from Wu-Tang Forever. Um, like, uh, I don't know, like, how do I say this? Um, it, like, it, like there's some beats that are off-kilter, there's some beats that are woozy, there's some beats that are just plain dark. Um, and I, I appreciate what they were trying to do. It's, it's fine, it's fine for the most part. I think I Can't Go to Sleep, which you already mentioned, I think that's a clear highlight um, because Ghostface Killer. 
Um, yeah, it, it, I'd probably give it a B, like 6 out of 10, or maybe I would, could be convinced of a 7, but it's fine. Yeah, I'm kind yeah. of in. I'm kind of in a similar camp to Marshall there, where like I would lean positive on it, but it's not something that I would really return to. I was pleasantly surprised with it. It's I really like the production. Um, it's again, I think the I think the reason that it got such a negative reaction, I think, is because it's a very morose, paranoid album. Like surprisingly, considering the next one will be the post nine eleven one, that this one feels like paranoid and just very downcast i can't go to sleep i think feels like almost the album the song you record after 9-11 with like the feds jumping out the jeeps and just that sort of whole both mournful and just like again like paranoid tone to it um i like what you said about the production i feel like there's stuff on here that feels minimalist in the same way the first album did but with a much bigger budget you have stuff like hollow bones um very skeletal beat no pun intended um but then you have stuff also like gravel pit kind of sees rizzo returning to like doing jazzier stuff but like with a spy jazz beat i think that's a really good attempt at doing a crossover single because i don't know if that's one of the whack hooks you're referring to i love that no no that that is not when i say whack hooks i mean um the junior reed stuff you know the 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 first main song after the intro it's the one that goes bang bang over and over careful click click or something careful yeah yeah, and and I'm not convinced about the hook on conditioner. I think it's like it's just oh, a single line from ODB. Conditioner is my one big beef with this album. Where it's placed feels terrible album placement. Uh, it feels like it's only on there because that's the only way they're going to get ODB on the album. And if you're going to do that, you just shouldn't have bothered. And I have no problem with any of the outside features, which I think was also a complaint at the time that their owner they're doing features outside the clan, but I think they all fit. Although it's kind of a rambling dusthead Nas verse, it's fine. Like he raps about the, the Nas verse gets kind of gross near the end when he's bragging about all the sex he's having. It's just like, all right, this came out of nowhere, but thanks, Nas. Thanks for letting us know that you you piss on women and and you have to drive them to the hospital after he gets stitches on their anus. Like, thank you for that. I didn't fucking need that. Um, yeah, it's very much. Uh, I wish we could bring back old podcast character, uh, coked up Slava Zizek. <laughs> <laughs> You could read that one, um, but this was very much an of its time Nas verse in that it yes. has a lot of uh, dust head aggression that thinks it's passionate rapping and like unverifiable brags, such as he was dating Sade, which I I think we should ask Sade about that one. I don't think it's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, Buster Condition. Rhymes doesn't have a good verse either on on Monument, but otherwise, I think the outside features are fine. Buster Rhymes has that really stupid line about how I me. I don't know that my, that his name is tattooed on my girlfriend's arm. It's just like, all right, man. Yeah, sure. You really got me there. You really cuckolded me. Thank you, Buster. Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Buster ahead of his time by cucking people. In 2000. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bust, I'm on the record as not really ever being that into Busta. So I, I have pretty low expectations for my Buster Rhymes features and that one. That was okay. I didn't mind him. The one I would lose. Yeah. I actually don't mind that junior Reed stuff. Um, I think that was, I think it fits the tone of the album because I think that Riz is doing a lot of like atmospheric borderline dubby stuff in the production sometimes with the space in the space in the production. So I think he fits. I really actually like uh, One Blood Under W. 
in terms of the production. Jaw World, I could see getting on people's nerves, especially in terms of like the religiosity I mentioned being very annoying on forever. That's like all kind of siphoned into the one track there. But what I will mm. say about that is Ghostface has a way, and Killer Priest has this same sort of ability to get away with doing stuff. He can't get away with the line on Bible, by the way. I still, that will never not fucking ruin that song for me. Cause that's such a fucking thudding moralist line that regardless of whether or not I agree with it, which I don't, it's just placed in the middle of the song. It's just in a way that will take you out of it completely. But Ghostface and Killer Priest both have a way of saying stuff like religious imagery, whether the imagery itself is so powerful that the moral, I'll let the moralizing go. And I kind of feel that way about his verse on Jaw World. He uses the same sort of, immediate passionate flow he employs on i can't go to sleep where it's just so vivid that it's engaging that it's engaging enough that i can forgive any sort of religious aspects that might come across like overly moralizing or doctrinaire otherwise it is a it is kind of a downer way to end the album but it's kind of a downer album so like yeah i will say that um I do kind of miss the cypher aspects of the first two albums, but I think that because I feel like overall, for the most part on tracks here, you don't get that as many people in a room trying to outwrap each other thing that you get on the first two albums. But when you do get it, it feels in spite of the overall dour tone, those tracks that do have that feel livelier than the like forever did. Uh, like protect your neck, the jump off, I think is livelier than anything on forever. That isn't triumph. Uh, do you really thank thing is similarly lively, although not quite as good. I could do without case lay on that gravel pits. Awesome. One of their best singles and very, very fun, especially with the stone age video. Um, Red bull also fun. Great red man feature. So yeah, aside from conditioner, I really wouldn't lose anything here. I think the production's very interesting, probably the most interesting result, like probably the, in terms of being both interesting and successful, probably the last, yes, the last uh, mm. Rizza Wu album, I would say, because the next, I can find things to like in the next two, but in terms of being an overall cohesive success, this is the last one. Yeah. And I think maybe part of the problem is, I, I, like, I didn't know about the reception at the time, but there's a lot of things happening in 2000, right? Like, Shell 3030, Eminem, um, MMLP. Uh, outcasting Konya, like this one just doesn't really stand out. It's just a good short album, and it's fine. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you have to think about both what Wu was doing at the time, like obviously the competition, and what Wu was doing at the time and what they were coming off of. Like I think this came out, it came out of Jason's Supreme Clientele for sure. So it's going to be compared to Supreme Clientele. It can't compare to that. No. It came off of Forever. It's better than Forever. I mean but it's not as momentous as forever. Like it's not, no, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like an event. It just simply doesn't. Uh, it just feels like a nice short album. And I feel like conditioner just that in turn. And also, yeah, like ODB is the most public member at the time. Still very alive. Like obviously still very alive. The dumbest thing I've ever said on the show. And, um, he's not in a good place. It's, and to throw him out there like that on the album for like, Hey, look, he's still around. It's like, he's clearly not. Like that's mm. your weekend at Bernie'sing this guy onto the album, and it's obvious mm -hmm. body. Like you should have just not done that. It doesn't feel honest. It's a bad look. So I mean, it's a minor part in the album. It's just one track, but it feels stapled on there. And it's also at the time too. Snoop wasn't really doing super. Like Snoop was like coming off his No Limit deal, I believe. It all that just 
the tacky and lame to put that on there. So gotcha. But yeah, good album. I don't think it deserves to be as overlooked as it does. I mean, it's a, a three, two on RYM, which doesn't feel super unfair. It feels a little low. It feels low. It's certainly lower than forever. I think forever is what, like a three, four, three, uh, three, five. Yeah. No, I don't think it deserves that kind of despair. No, I don't. I don't agree either. I think they're about, yeah, I think it should be bopped up. All right. Moving on to iron flag. More great cover art here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this one at least is funny. Yeah, I mean, at least this one has a sense of humor. Right? It's not just lazy. Uh, uh, poor Capadonna, airbrushed out of the air cover like that. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> he was not yet an official member, to be fair. He was not made an official member until eight diagrams. Um, this one... I think, I think you know what, if someone took a picture of us as a group, and then later on it was uploaded as the official podcast picture, and I was airbrushed out, I'd be kind of be like, what the fuck, guys? <laughs> well... Yeah, that, 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 that's fair. There is a yeah. Capadonna album that came out around this time called, I believe, appropriately enough, The Struggle, mm. um, where he is showing very evident signs of how unhappy he was with Rizza. <laughs> so if you want to hear how Capadonna felt about being airbrushed out of this cover art, there's a song called Broken Glass. <laughs> you can listen to the end of that song. That's another thing. Your homework is to listen for the next episode is to listen to Rizza Crafts and Beat a Guitar Center. And you don't have to listen to any other Capadonna solo aside from the pillage and the song Broken Glass. All right. I look forward to that. Well, another yeah. point about Capadonna on this yeah. album is he's not even credited on his one verse. Yeah, Rizzo was being a whole asshole to Capadonna at this time period. I mean, yeah. Rizzo was being a whole asshole to a lot of people a lot of the time, but right. Maybe he's mad he ran out of turkey burgers. There's another there's, there's an anecdote about him. Uh, this one feels like a corrective to like, okay, you guys didn't like the tone of um, the W. You didn't like there were enough group tracks. You thought it was too down tempo. He tries to rectify that pretty much with this, I would say. And it's fine. It's that's pretty much it. It's fine. It, I revisit it like revisiting it. It didn't leave that much of an impression. I would say this is the first one that didn't leave that much of an impression on me. Move the needle one way or another. I really could have done without the Flavor Flav guest spot. I will say that I felt. Oh, like, I like that one. That sucks. <laughs> I just I, I don't know. I like when Flavor Flav shows up and then hypes someone up and then just that's it. It's fine. Well, I felt like the song itself was good, and then he it just drags on for two minutes afterward. Like that's, yeah. that's the pro- that was my problem with it. It was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is still going. Um, I felt like Babies was a drag, and that it felt like it was like a W song that got left over, and just like it's a good song, but it felt like completely tonally um, opposite to the rest of the album. Uh, I felt like. My favorite part of it is the album was very early on. It's like post 9-11, so I guess it recorded very um, very soon after 9-11. So my fa- so I guess you can take this in the same vein, same little micro genre as like Fantastic Damage, like New York response albums to 9-11. Ghostface um, pretty much threatening to tell Mr. Bush that he's going to kick him off and take over the war. It's his war now. I think that's probably the worst line on the album to be honest. <laughs> that, that is actually, that is actually, it comes so early on. I think it's on the second track on uh, Rules. Yeah. And it's, it's like, the first verse. Right getting, yeah, it's absurd. It's one of the dumbest verses um, from so someone that I, that, that someone that I regard as smart. And he starts off with, who the fuck knocked our buildings down? Well, that's, that's public knowledge, buddy. <laughs> you know, you, you could have looked it up. For it. 
And then he asked, he's like, where are the where where are the four planes at? Like, what do you mean? What are you, what are you asking? <laughs> Um, and it wasn't me, unfortunately, but uh, I think it was Gary Suarez um, who pointed out the great irony in Ghostface Killer threatening to blow up terrorists should they ever come to his hood. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can definitely like, you can chart Ghostface's evolution from I can't go to sleep. He's nervous about the feds jumping out their jeeps to um, rules where he's going to kick Mr. Bush off the war. And once he finds out who's responsible, by the way, if only there was some way for him to do so. To, on the beginning of the Pretty Tony album, he threatens to go to Iraq and come back with Saddam's teeth. Yeah, it's um, it, there's real Freedom Fries energy leaking in this verse. And it, it just colors my whole appreciation of this album, even though it's not very good besides. Well, I mean, I, I hadn't even thought about it. Maybe they're also supposed to be, you know, um, supporting our troops with this cover art, too. The Iron <laughs> yeah, like, that's, a, that's a real good point. I, I, and it's not, really, it's not really full of that, you know, like, uh, big 9-11 changed everything. Like, there's not really too much of that other than that. But no. for sure, like, I always thought that was, like, it's very different than um, Joel Santana shoot, shouting out Muhammad Atta on diplomatic immunity. And, and you know what? And, and to Ghostface's credit, a lot of people were very weirdly, um, had really silly ideas about mm -hmm. the fucking war on terrorism and 9-11. So, you know, maybe it was just like, maybe it's just, it's emblemat emblematic of the times. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes. Yeah, there were a lot, I mean, just sort of related, but there was a, uh, earlier this year was, uh, what the the twentieth anniversary of uh, the, the U.S. Dixie war in Iraq? Yeah, and there oh, was okay, a lot yeah. of um, there was a lot of stuff going around social media of like here are some of the like horrific like pieces that were being written around this time that we just like we all just we all we you know, either glossed like, over or supported we yeah. supported them because we were like yeah like we I, I don't know I, I'm not American but I remember even yeah. as a Canadian there was a like when when we're talking about the war on terror it's just like yeah like a lot of people were um, for it, right? So yeah, yeah, very, very. Uh, yeah. Um, but to go back to this album, I think the problem is RZA is doing things that just don't sound like RZA. Uh, so Chrome Wheels, for example, it sounds like a lazy DJ quick beat. Uh, it doesn't sound like a RZA beat at all. Um, the Prodigal Son verse is not very good. Soul Power um, that I mentioned earlier, it sounds like he's trying to do Rakeem. No, he's trying to do Eric B. Sorry, from like the '80s, and it's just like, all right, that's fine. But Boozy um, doesn't really sound good in the context of this album with the happy horn loop. Uh, Radioactive sounds absolutely garbage. There's like this squealing noise every other beat. So every like. Um, twice per measure and then madam d i don't know who the fuck she is but she needs to shut up because like her over singing <laughs> is just so over the top and over like zealous um following like blue raspberries probably the same person following blue raspberries appearance on um only built for cuban links uh and yeah that's all i got on this album those are my notes i don't like it uh probably b minus 2.5 out of 5 or a 5 out of 10 just kind of middling yeah, I feel I I have the same, the same. It, there's there are points on here where it kind of feels like they're grasping for, for past you know uh, glory, which is not a uncommon thing in late period rap albums. It would only get later uh, for for Wu Tang, but um, I remember 
liking um, you know Uzi a lot, and then I remember liking the uh, the the intro, but that's kind of really the only notes, the only true notes I have. I, I, you can feel to me that they like really that like ODB's energy would have been a welcome uh, addition to the album, in, in my opinion, just to to spice it up a little bit. Yeah, I feel like... Even, no, go ahead. Even for the time period, like, the beats are average, you know? Yes. Yes, they are. Yeah, I feel like we're definitely getting into the period where RZA is not wanting to repeat himself, so... And also trying to overcompensate for what's not there anymore. So you don't have ODB, you don't have group members who want to be in the same room anymore, so... And he doesn't want to repeat himself by repeating things that he's done in the past, and he doesn't want to over-rely on samples, doesn't rely on 70s soul loops, doesn't rely on kung fu samples. So now he's trying regional stuff, he's trying throwbacks, he's trying live instrumentation, which is also, like, he's also... This is also post Ghost Dog too, so he's starting to get that Hollywood influence. That cin- like instead of being influenced by movies he's watching, he's being or watched as a child, or he's being influenced by movies he's worked on and all these tricks that he thinks he knows. Uh, they thinks he knows. I'm coming across again really pandering from having worked in the business. So he's and it's all just too much. It's just it's not inspired. It's too many ideas with not enough inspiration. And it all does come across like overcompensation when the key of the group is group chemistry that just doesn't exist. You're trying to, you're trying to put too many band-aids on things essential when the key problem that you can't rectify is the lack of chemistry, energy and chemistry that just aren't fundamentally there. I mean, I like the intro. I like the intro. I can laugh. I can laugh at rules even though I shouldn't be able to because for the reasons Marshall said, because I, mean, like, I think it's stupid, but it's also like insulting and does and is in fact a reminder of some real fucking problematic shit. Uh, I think Uzi's a great song, but yeah, like it doesn't really work in album context because nothing really works in this album context. Um, I think the title track's pretty good, even though Capadonna, again, not great on it because it's Capadonna. Uh, I would, I, Think, I think I have it an eight. I don't know. I have it a seven, but I'm probably there'd be another one I would downrate to a six. Like I would say I have three I'm downrating now. I originally would have it as a seven because I didn't mind it when I was just riding around listening to it yesterday, but I couldn't really tell you anything that I it didn't leave that much of an impression on me, but now when I'm going through it in my head, there's more that I can tell you more that didn't work about it than did overall. And what doesn't work about it is that it just feels like it's trying to fix things that you can't fix you can't go yes and it's doing it in a way that's just emblematic of problems that are going to get worse with rizza as time goes on Mm -hmm. in terms of the way he approaches music fundamentally so so this would lead to a long group silence in which, you know, old dirty bastard Russell Jones, rest in peace, he would die in 2004, I believe. 2004, yeah. So, there would be a question as to whether or not the group would even continue as a going concern. They would put out some greatest hits, they would do Rock the Bells, there would be a lot of public disputes between go- mainly Ghostface and Raekwon and Riza about the direction of what the next album was going to take. It was always going to be called Eight Diagrams. The only thing that was really released under the Wu-Tang name was in 2005, Riza 
working with, of all people, Jim Jarmusch, the film director, and uh, Dreddy Kruger, the Wu-Tang A&R, put out Wu-Tang Meets the Indie Culture, which has very mu- a lot of indie culture and not a lot of Wu-Tang on it. Um, have either Are either of you super familiar with this album? No. No, not no. at all? Not at no, all. not really. It does have... Um, well, my review is funny because I call Rock Marciano a sec- nothing more than a second-rate Raekwon impersonator, which is funny considering that, you know, years later I would devote four hours of a podcast to calling him one of the best rappers alive. So clearly I was onto something there when I insulted him, much like when I called Ka an off-brand DMX. I did not mean to dwell on this. I didn't know that you said that about Ka. I've mentioned it several times. Okay, in my... I would, was going to save this for the solo episode, but it's in my Pro Tools review. I call Ka, because that's Ka's first appearance, aside from his salt, like the stuff no one's ever heard. He appears on um, track eight of Pro Tools, the terrible fucking Jizz album, on a track mm. on Firehouse, because the reference should be obvious now, Ka. And um, I say, Ka, I don't know who this budget off brand DMX is, but he needs to shut the fuck up or something about Ka. <laughs> yeah. That's, 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 that's probably. Funny. Oh, my my worst fucking take ever. <laughs> like, that's even worse than my little peep takes on the episode that we will never let air. Um, but yeah, the Wu Tang versus the Indie Culture album is mainly notable for um, RZA and MF Doom on a track together, Biochemical Equation. That was the main hype track at the time. The Rock verse is actually really, really good. I was shockingly completely wrong on that. Although I do maintain that early Rock does try consciously to sound like Raekwon. Um, um, on his initial stuff with um, Action Bronson, I do think they try and sound like Ghost and Raekwon. It's a fun album because you get to hear um, uh, Jizza on the same track as Raz Kaz and back before Raz is like the corniest man alive. And it's, that's some of the last material where Jizza actually tries. I firmly maintain after this album, Jizza stopped giving a fuck. And you'll hear it on the next stuff we cover. Um, Sean Price is really fun on these two. And it's also when you start hearing Bronze Nazareth contributing a lot of stuff to the Wu universe, and he, at this point, would basically become what Rizzi used to be in terms of sound, um, as close as you're going to get, at least. So, it's fun. If you like old Wu-Tang stuff, it's worth checking out. And there's a lot of names that you that will become important later. Like, well, Sean Price was already important, so... I don't know. It's more interesting than the Iron Flag or the Wu-Tang albums afterwards, so worth worth checking out. Okay. Good um, to know. Yeah. Uh, certainly like uh, better than the next album we're going to cover. Although I spent a lot of time defending this album, I fully understand why people shit all over it, including the people on the album, Eight Diagrams. You know what? Yeah. Uh, Caleb mentioned that the album covers of the last ones were kind of lazy. The album cover of this one just looks like garbage. It just looks like that like final CGI fight from the Jet Li movie, The One, where he gets teleported <laughs> into the future. Um. <laughs> I saw that in theaters. I fucking saw I, that in theaters. I begged my dad to pay $30 on a new DVD from HMV so I could watch it because I loved Jet Li. So <laughs> don't worry. Either way, we lose, right? So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you probably lost if you spent money on this CD like I did. So maybe that's why. Okay. <laughs> I already I always tell the story about how I spent money on both the two Rizza and Jizza solo albums that came out after this. I so I, I also spent money on this in the same calendar year. So I definitely gave Rizza way too much of my money in this time period. So fuck you, Rizza. Um, maybe that's why I was so 
I did not get the bonus DVD that came with this. I'm supposed to get a bonus DVD. I got extra work. Um, all right. I will explain why I defend this one before we tear sure. into it. Uh, sure. I think the instrumentals on it are really, really interesting. I think yes, that they I are agree, actually. Really very well done. I think that there's not a with the exception of Starter, there's not a bad instrumental on here. I mean, and Starter doesn't work for reasons unrelated to the instrumental. There's a way that Starter could have worked. I think that Method Man is great on this album. I think that Ghostface is great on this album. I think that there are ideas that, for the most part, are more well thought out than the ideas on Iron Flag and certainly on A Better Tomorrow. I think that in terms of song count, with the exception of Starter, Starter is fucking terrible. We'll, we'll just, we'll get to that. Um, I think that the guest spots are big swings that when they're not some guy named Dexter Wiggle or the people on Starter are actually pretty compelling. I think that the George Clinton guest spot is fun. I, I think know. You like that Gerald Alston's feature? Uh, oh, I thought that was Dexter Wiggle again. Okay. Now, now that I'm looking at Stick Me For My Riches, I thought that was Dexter Wiggle again. No, he sucks. All right, um, we're on the same page. We're on the same page. Okay, yeah, we're on the same keep page. going. Keep going. Okay. Uh, I feel like if you... So the deluxe version of this does not end with life changes. It has Tar Pit, which is another um, George Clinton feature on it, which has like a similar to Gravel Pit. I mean, it's obviously a sequel. It's kind of like spy jazzy live horn thing going on. And it has an actual ODB feature on it with a 36 Chambers outtake. It's ODB and meth on it. It's something chamber. If you take those two and put them in for Stick Me For My Riches and Starter and like kind of fuck with the sequencing a little bit, I think this album is thought of way better. Okay. If you, but again, you shouldn't have to fucking like edit the albums. Yeah, the seriously, alter the track list in order. We to, had yeah. this argument on the on whenever Kanye comes up, and only time we're gonna mention him. Still on fucking timeout, punishment, whatever. But you shouldn't have to edit the albums for the artists. So that's Wait, which where album? Which album were you talking about for Kanye? I don't know. Pick one from the past twelve years. Got it. All right. <laughs> Pablo onward. I mean, but, he literally uh, did it on Pablo, so you could. Yes. Uh, he did fix wolves. I mean, maybe he could fix this wolves too. I don't know. And also, there was um, uh, the the original single for this was um, uh, what the fuck was it called? Uh, it, it didn't make it. Oh, watch your mouth. So if you put watch your mouth on here as well, that was a really good. It had everybody on it except for ODB. I mean, it was a little droning, but it was a classic like one after the other cipher type cut. Like you could put that on there as well. So you would end up with fifteen tracks, no starter, no stick me for my riches. And those three tracks on there instead, I feel like it's way closer to what people would have wanted. And yes, you also have to figure the media rollout to this. Again, me, neither of you remember this. Was just those these guys fucking fighting about it in the media, preparing people to hate this shit. And, mm -hmm. I, and you can see how. And finally, last point, going back to what Caleb said about the beginning of um, and what we all agree to about forever. You started it with a long-ass skit again. Granted, mm -hmm. not as annoying of a long-ass skit, but and it's more thematically appropriate. It's like, you know, Kung, Kung Fu movie. I don't know if it's Shaw Brothers. But Campfire's probably the best song on here, bar for bar, beat for beat. It's fucking amazing. The bass line on it's incredible. It's as good a Capadonna verse as you're ever going to get. How many people are going to sit through that fucking intro? They're already pissed off. So I think there's a lot that this album does... It does itself no favors. It did itself no favors in its rollout. It does itself no favors in its sequencing. There's objectively some of the worst Wu-Tang music on here, but I don't think it's a 
bad album in the same way that the next album is. And no, it's practically a masterpiece by comparison. So, yeah. and I, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate some of the stuff he was going. I feel like I mean, w- this is one of those albums along with I really wanted to talk about the grave, di- like, and for the sake of you know brevity because we do have a hard out on this episode i didn't bring this up i did want to talk about the gravediggers album in relation to 36 chambers i think they're very much sister albums i think the gravediggers album is also a 10 i think prince paul's production on that uh, the rizza prince paul production i've always been confused as to who like one of them produced the vast majority and one produced like i think prince paul does the majority and rizza does only like three or four tracks but i don't quote me on that i haven't heard the album in a while it's, but I feel like they're both very similar to each other in terms of production. I've been waiting for forever for a fucking instrumental version of Six Feet Deep. I'm also waiting forever, and I'm never going to get an instrumental version of this because everybody hates this album. I think Rizzo's disowned it because he's embarrassed about it, the way it was rolled out. And I think A Better Tomorrow was a horribly misguided attempt at correcting this. But Okay, now we can well, shit off. The hook well, actually, Did you know um, Six Feet Under, Prince Paul couldn't get labels to um, release it until after Enter 36 Chambers came out? And people were like, well, people actually like this kind of like super hardcore, gritty, violent sort of kind of music. Yeah, it seems like I remember that. And then th- completely missing the point that it's, first of all, like satire. And it's about mm-hmm. hate the industry <laughs> for not putting their shit out. Yeah. And. I think he also oversold the RZA. I think it is mostly Paul with one RZA B because I think Paul actually oversold how much RZA was involved in the production to try and get it sold at that point. Because yeah. Paul. So. Okay. But yeah. Okay. Now we can eight, shit on it. You guys. Eight diagrams. Ahead. Okay. Here's my hot take. Here's my fucking scorcher of a hot take. Life Changes is awful. It, it's not a good song. And I, I, it's seven minutes. Every verse is very short. And then the chorus takes just as much time as the verse. So that's the only reason why it's seven minutes. It's like, it's not like Triumph or Protect Your Neck where like it just, everything is coming at you super fast. It's sprawled out. It's spaced out for no fucking reason. But then you actually listen to some of these words and it's a tribute to old Dirty Bastards passing. And then the words are so corny. I became weak when I heard that his body expired. It was hard to, it was hard for me to believe my brother retired. Like you, like that rhyme is telegraphed from a mile away. And then someone else calls ODB the pearl in the ocean, but he's up on the land pissed. I'm like, what what is this? Like, these are really corny eulogies that I would be embarrassed about if I was the one that passed, to be honest. Like I would just, I just, I feel the emotion. I think it's Diction who said that the emotion was forced on that song. And I don't disagree. I just, I think it's a weak track. That's my hot take. I don't disagree with you. If I recall, first of all, Ghostface isn't on it, right? Like, there's one I who's not. Think yeah, one, that's true. And I think that there was some story that RZA rushed it out to them and only gave them a certain amount of time to record it. Like, after making them wait forever on everything else, he rushed that out to them. It's like, you only have 48 hours to do this. Okay, go. First of all, that's not an excuse. You or I could write some better lines than that. And I'm pretty sure that one you quoted about expired, retired was RZA. I'm not sorry, Jizza, which it's like. Jizza. It's Jizza. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what's most film disappointing film. to me. Yeah. You put your quill pen down to your scroll next to your crystal chessboard and came up with expired, retired, that moon spoon June shit. Like, give me a fucking yeah. break. But uh, I feel bad. Like, again, you're that was an eulogy for his cousin. I just shit all over. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a real good person. But, yeah, we're all- <laughs> but it's also like uh, you're kind of getting the I wrote an essay about my dead grandmother. So I get an A excuse on that. Yes. Like, that's the problem mm-hmm. there. But on a fundamental level, yeah, it's a poorly structured song. 
Um, I think I was way too kind to it in my review. I think I was way too kind to a lot of things in my review about this. But if you remember, I don't know if either of you remember this, but this has the exact same sample as um, Percy P. song, The Lady Behind Me from Perseverance. Mad Lib did the same flip right around the same time. Way the fuck better. So it really underlines how lazy RZA was with this flip. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a structurally, yeah, he doesn't vary it up a, at all until like maybe the very end he drops out the drums, I think, and then like lets the sample play a little bit before he plays the, and then at the end, I think there's a clip of like the Tibetan Book of the Dead is read, which is a nice little touch, like a nice little production touch for the credits, but it feels lazy, it feels, like Diction said, the emotions force is perfunctory, it feels, but it feels like you don't want to say anything bad about it, because they're eulogizing old dirty bastards, they're eulogizing their friend and family member, so. Yep, that's why I came right out and just said it, got, got it out the way early, I don't like that song at all. Get it out your yep. way. Uh, um, I will say, yeah, like, I agree with you for the most part, there are some really good cuts here, um, Campfire, Get them out your uh get them out your way, pa. Um, I love the beat of Unpredictable. Actually, it's like very heavy industrial. There's a lot of metal and scream uh metal screams, and like there's a guitar that blends into it. I think that's a good straw song. Sorry, that's a good beat at least. I think Wolves is great. Um, Method Man gets a couple of really good lines throughout. I think it's Wolves anyway. Yeah. Um, and I guess we sort of dance around this, but uh, I, I kind of I dug it the first time I heard it, but. Now, when I see the words, um, you know, featuring George Harrison's son on guitar and featuring that Red Hot Chili Peppers dude also on guitar, I just kind of roll my eyes. But Eric Abadu also always sounds good. So that's uh, the Heart Gently Weeps. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. First of all, my heart, the Heart Gently Weeps is, it's complicated. It feels like, so it's originally based upon a flip that Ghostface had on a song called My Guitar, which is obviously the guitar gently weeps is mm-hmm. flip never in a million years going to get cleared it was on a hidden dart one of his hidden darts tapes and a different verse i believe and then riz is like hey that's a great idea i'm a pretentious asshole what if i got george harrison's kid and a chili pepper on that and made it as bombastic as possible yeah and that's how you get that um it's so many elements that don't necessarily work together like I like the ghost part. I love the Erica yep. part. I think the beat is corny as hell. Method Man sounds angry to be on the song. <laughs> <laughs> like he's like, I can't believe this cornball shit. Uh, Windmill and Weak Spot both feel like good songs he didn't finish, which, given how long he took to work on this shit, is, unac- is unacceptable. Unacceptable that anything would be unfinished on this. Whereas. The two worst songs on here feel like he spent way too long working on them right before that. Stick me with Stick Me for My Riches feels like it has every idea like five albums worth of ideas on it. It's like a fucking hundred geck song or whatever. And like Starter is just I always yeah, I, that I, that run from like like the 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 sunlight down is pretty tough. See, I can get yeah, the like second a, half sort of just kind of falls apart yeah the first half is very strong and then the second half is just like uh i remember now this is wu-tang in 2007 we're talking about yeah sequencing wise it's yeah you can i'm looking at that now it's i mean i can get with sunlight it's not like i'm ever like you know throw on that song where rizza talks about children with dead with uh, f- dead eyes <laughs> on their face that's that that's that bop but like i can get with it although i can also get with like being in wu-tang and being like oh cool rizza the guy who held us back for five years gave himself a solo song to like preach at us that's cool um sunlight does 
I think that's another one where I might be hearing things on that. It might just be the way he flows on it. Feels like another one where he's doing something a much better producer flip, though, because it sounds a lot to me like Count Basie's Sanctuary off Dwight Spitz. But again, like a uh, way overblown flip that's not as good. But it might just be that he flows the same way on that. Um, yeah, until the next album, Stick Me For My Riches, Back to Back With Starters, the worst sequence on any Wu-Tang album, period. Um, on the other hand, I think Rushing Elephants and Unpredictable is like some of the most like interesting music they've done, period. Uh, just instrumentally. So, I don't know. It gets a bad rap. I don't want to dwell too much on it, but I really wish they put out an instrumental version of this, because I think that that's... This is the last interesting stuff RZA did instrumentally, period. I think Unpredictable is... The last great RZA beat, to be honest. Maybe Campfire. I don't know. So there are some really good beats here. Yeah. Campfire is so, yeah. fucking awesome. Campfire's The way that comes in and then Meth comes in on it really had me hyped this was going to be better than it was. And for a while, mm-hmm. I think I convinced myself it was better than it was. I still don't think it's bad. I'm going to say it's better than Iron Flag, having just listened to Iron Flag and realized that Iron Flag doesn't hold up that much. But You know what? I could, I could, get, I could get behind that because, like... It, it means some. It means more to me when there's some good beats, and if there's some corny shit to get to those good beats, whatever. But Iron Flag has no good beats going for it, and yeah, there's nothing corny, but there's nothing good. There's nothing great about it either. So, I mean, I'd say I'd say Uzi's a good beat. Um, what I was surprised is I thought Fam Members Only was on Iron Flag, and it wasn't. Where, where is that on? Strictly Fam Members Only. Uh, oh, I think that might be on um, a Jizza solo album. I think that's on surface never mind that's on beneath the surface uh that was around the same time period though so because i thought that was the other but i was getting my wu-tang with parenthetical singles mixed up so but yeah i, I could see saying that um unpredictable is the last great and like if you think about it in sequence is the last great rizza beat um because windmill and weak spot i both think are good beats that he didn't finish wolves is a cool beat uh well if you think of tar pit i think tar pit's an amazing beat but people don't remember that because it's a bonus track and also half of it's just george clinton ranting but somebody let the monkeys out the cage somebody let the monkeys out the cage which is fun but i can see why you wouldn't return to that too much um and the 36 chambers outtake is really fun to have too like this is an alternate take but it's cool to see like i mean hearing meth from that time period will never get old to me so, yeah, I don't. no, I, I think I agree with the general like consensus that we arrived at, that it has more interesting going on. I mean, I've only listened to it like a couple times ever, but the, the easy standouts that you guys talked about were also standouts for me. And, you know, like I said before, the back half is pretty, pretty tough until that, like, you know, there's a couple of uh, bright spots here and there. But, yeah, the. Campfire, phenomenal song and, and great, um, great, great, great baseline. So, yeah. All right. So before we arrive at um, in our very ironically titled album that also steals from one of their songs that it has no right to do so, there were two fake Wu Tang albums that RZA decided to release. There was a Chamber Music, which I did not re-listen to for this, uh, which based upon my review from Jesus God twelve years ago. Um, it's basically just a posse album that has most, it's like essentially a satellite ghost face EP with a bunch of, uh, pretentious RZA interludes on it. How, how many skits can we get? How many, uh, every song has to have like a one minute, uh, interlude after it. That, that made no sense to me. The ratio is eight out of 17 songs has rap. It's literally like 45% of the album. (laughs) Yeah. 
I it's an album full of filler. I heard it uh, before this uh, before this podcast. Can I tell you a thing about it? Um, it, it is just the most memorable album. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I I vaguely recall the track New York um, NYC Crack by RZA being a pretty good old style RZA um, track, like circa like Bobby Digital Digital Bullet type thing. Um, beyond that, uh, oh yeah, there's a track with Raekwon and Sean Price on it that's okay, and um, there's a Ghostface and Trey Williams. If you like the Ghostface stuff where he raps with a, over like a bright R&B type thing, or the Ghostface. Oh, know. is it? I Wish You Were Here? Yeah. It sounded like Ghostini. Um, yeah, whatever. Uh, you like that, which I don't, I mean, I don't mind Ghostini. I know most of the world does. We'll get to that next week. I'm, that might be an interesting discussion. Some people passionately hate Ghostini, so... <laughs> I, I don't hate it. I think, uh, yeah, we'll get to it. But yeah, this um, is this doesn't really warrant talking about too much at all. Uh, no. It's RZA being a pretentious asshole trying to make money off the Wu Tang name. Legendary weapons. RZA being a pretentious asshole trying to make money off the Wu Tang name, and also ripping off somebody else's idea because L. Michael's affair had started making their name doing really cool live versions of Wu Tang songs, a la Bad Bad Not Good, doing their live hip hop covers. There's also no RZA beats. There's no fucking yeah. RZA beats. Yeah. Yeah. But this is just I was looking through the production credits. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Who are these people? Who is Noah Rubin? Can you tell me? Who, who's Little Fame? All right. I'm, I'm glad I'm not missing out. I'm glad I'm, I'm not. I'm glad it's not some underrated like producer that I just no, completely forgot about. Budget, yeah, like the, we don't even get like a lot of mathematics on here. Like you don't even get any like of the like any of the woo elements. You just get like diet Kirkland woo elements that he like picked up at the DVD discount bin, like cutout bin. So I gotta yeah, say, what really hurts this album is um, a lot of the songs use a sample like movie dialogue or whatever as the hook. I think like four songs do it. So you have a rap verse, then you got a movie sample as the sk- as the chorus, then you get a different verse, and then you get another movie sample, and you get a different verse over and over and over again. And it just makes the album feel so tedious uh, and samey. Yeah. And I feel like I guess the appeal here is supposed to be that you're getting like sort of dream match collaborations, like you get Deck and Ace, you get uh, well, I guess. God, Deck and Killa and Ghostface and AZ, you get like Sean Price and Raekwon, like, and I guess there's some appeal to that, but again, I don't remember anything about these tracks, there's nothing I would really if I don't remember anything about them they couldn't have been that great, and again, referencing my review, everything seems like it's perfectly fine nobody dogs it necessarily, but the instrumentals aren't memorable RZA's interludes are infuriating Actually, and- I think Ghostface does a pretty poor job um, like uh, to the point where Aquanash and Bronson shows up, uh, it's like it's clear that Ghostface isn't trying anymore. It's, uh, we already carrying weapons. I thought you were talking about. I thought we were still talking about the last one. Oh, I've moved on. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I thought we as a collective okay, had, okay. had moved on. Okay, no, wow, no, no. that's how unmemorable oh. these are. I, well, oh, production wise, yeah, this is the fake. This is the fake uh, L. Michaels affair. Uh, yeah. Um, well, it's My the exact God. same thing. It's the exact same thing. And uh, I would say that uh, I remember this one slightly more. I don't think that I don't think Ghostface did that terrible on this one. Bronson has the best verse. Bronson has yeah. uh, by far. Um, this is definitely the start of Ghostface slowing down, though. I will say that. 
I won't say he's at the actively bad level that he could sometimes get to in the later half of the next decade, but he gets outwrapped by both Brock Marcy and uh, he gets outwrapped by Sean Price, Brock Marcy, and Bronson on this, which I don't think would have happened a few years ago if those like if you were somehow able to match them at their level when they're on this with him at that level back then. If that makes sense. I mean, the irony of him getting outwrapped by Action Bronson is now lost on. Hell is that they had beef a few years later. I forget over right. stupid. It was uh it was it was like an interview that action that action did. Oh, it was like twenty yeah, like, like twenty fifteen. And then Ghostface did the Teddy Teddy Pendergrass video, oh, which is hilarious. Thing and like called him fat boy a hundred times and it's like, you know, you wouldn't exist because of me, blah blah. And somebody had to remind him that he was on a song with him years before. <laughs> That's funny. And no, actually, that, that that video is amazing. And he actually did an interview afterwards talking about how he was cool. He's like, yeah, he sounds more like me than I do. It's amazing. He sounds like a young me. <laughs> and then, like four years later, he's all pissed off at him. <laughs> Cutting promos on him with fucking Teddy Pendergrass. Oh, fat boy, you wouldn't exist without me. It's it's really hilarious, the the, the video, because he's like he, – he, he'll reference like a line that just – that, that uh, just happened in the song that's playing in the background. And he's like, you hear that? That's how your fat ass sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> Very oh. definitely, definitely worth a, a revisit on the video. It's really, really hilarious. And I think there's also a time where they like, he has like, you know, like video, like video vixens or like, you know, radio rap girls come in and like talk to him, like try and like shill his like medicine or whatever, which is just like his like dispensary wax or something <laughs> like in the middle of it. Like, please ghost, we need our medicine. <laughs> like there's like some video where he talks about it too, where that happens, which is also interesting. Like this all lasted like over the course of like three days and then it was squashed. One hundred percent. Yeah, it happened quick. It happened quick. Yeah, and really, what was the what was the wasn't there around that time too? Where like, whether it was Raekwon or Method Man, somebody hit Joe Button in the face or something. Oh, that's because there was beef. That sounds like Raekwon. Raekwon was like constantly hitting people. Like you didn't want any fucking beef with Raekwon. Uh, He they beat the shit out of Mace infamously. I can't believe we didn't talk about that. Like that was a very famous story. Like, I'm pretty sure that's where the one line on Through the Wire comes. If you could feel how my face felt, you would know how Mace felt. How Mace felt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think yeah. the Joe Budden thing, the Joe Budden thing might have happened at Rock the Bells. Like, I think that they, that was the Wu-Tang that rocked the, uh, when Wu-Tang played Rock the Bells that I was talking about, I believe, is that, yeah, like, he was being Joe Budden in some way, shape, or form and got what was coming to him. Yeah. As, as Joe Budden does. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is, I I, re- I think I remember liking this one better than the last one just because of uh I mean first of all the knockoff beats are slightly better because the knockoff L Michaels affair is slightly more interesting than whatever the fuck the last one was um and the rock and action tracks and to a slightly lesser extent the AZ and Sean Price tracks and I have a slightly higher opinion I'm using the word slightly a lot you'll notice qualifier than a slightly higher opinion of the Ghostface stuff than. Marshall did, but again, these are not Wu Tang albums. These are Ghostface EPs with RZA hanging around. That's what all these are. Mm-hmm. All right, so a better tomorrow. This album fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Out of the way. I in my re-listen, I forgot how clean and like squeaky clean it was. It's like this is this is this is gross. Yeah, nah. it's pretty lifeless. I gave Soulless, this. A, I guess 
I gave this a six in my review. I don't know like how I must've been having a really good day or really intoxicated or really, I don't know what the fuck I was. I'm really generous because there is almost nothing to like on this album. Nothing that is good about Wu Tang on this album. I kind of enjoy the beat on Ruckus and B minor. Yeah. Um, that, that's it for me. But I don't think felt is bad either, but these are the and, two like starting tracks and it just gets worse and worse and worse from there. Well, the thing about it is even those two tracks felt, I felt was like just, it was a big swing of a beat and I was willing to grant it on those terms, but they just feel like they're trying so hard to do something. Well, Ruckus and B minor is trying so hard to both be like the Wu-Tang track you want to hear with everybody on it and all the noise and chaotic energy and the ODB samples and stuff. But the verses aren't really there. The energy feels forced. The beat switches feel like they're trying too hard and felt is trying like, I, dubstep's the wrong words. It's the first one that comes to mind. Feels like that's what <laughs> dubstep is, quote unquote IDM. The whole thing with the gimmick of using felt in their verses, like it's something Meth does a lot. He'll do the word gimmick in one of his other verses here. And by the way, Meth is the close. Meth and Ghost are the ones who come closest to coming away from this unscathed. I would say in terms of their performances, and they're still pretty corny. But like the thing about it is, this feels like a lot of stuff is. They got creative writing prompts almost. Like Riz is like, this song's gonna be about this. Write about like how you felt and do a bunch of entendres about feelings and shit. And mm -hmm. it's hard to work with that. And so you end up with shit like write about like uh, a whole bunch of things about like mistaken identity scenarios. That was brutal. Like, what the fuck was that? That actually reminded me of some shit the clowns will do. Like, Violent J will write fucking so Sorry, Wyatt. I'm sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> all these songs about, like, death scenarios or, like, dumb, dumb, dumb juggalos or whatever will, like, do, like, jackass stunts and then they die and he raps about it in, like, three different ways. And that's actually way, way better than we get on, like, Mistaken Identity where all these dumb scenarios about, like, mistaken identities or, like, metaphors about mistaken identity for, like, six minutes. And then you have that stretch with, like, Okay, so Keep Watch was like, I believe, the first... Ron O'Neill and Keep Watch were the singles. I don't know what was the first single. I remember Keep Watch not being terrible. I was wrong. That song's fucking dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Those flows are terrible. So you have Keep Watch is back-to-back -back with Miracle. We'll get back to Miracle and Preacher's Daughter. The worst stretch on any Wu-Tang album. Just... Yeah. just Miracle is yeah. the worst Wu Tang song. I'm putting that on the table right now, and when we can we can table this for the solo episode because there there are some solo contenders. I mean, not even that, that chorus is awful. Miracle yeah. just it sounds like it's out of Frozen. It <laughs> it's absolutely atrocious. There's for some reason Ghostface tries to save it by rapping really hard at the end, but there is no saving that. It is just. When you say squeaky clean, that is like Rudy Giuliani gentrified fucking Times Square through a Disney store up in it, squeaky clean. Like, that's... Yeah. That is. That is just... And the sampling on Preacher's Daughter is one of the corniest things I've ever heard. Ever. Yep. Yeah, I don't like this album. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I got... I got nothing positive to say. This is the this is the album that contains that stupid Coachella verse that I just that's the one I always think about from RZA. Uh, that spin like propeller, my dog like old yeller, 
holler at the moon, my goons at Coachella. Like, it doesn't, like, what the fuck are you saying? Why, why is this a brag to you? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's um, something like, there's a lot about Purple Haze Festival. Like, Purple Haze Festivals want to have a ball, might as well pick a testicle on like um, eight diagrams. Ghostface says that. That's like a music festival thing that's like funny. That mm-hmm. reason, like, funny. That's like not the flex you think it is, Bobby. No, like, it's, it's quite quite terrible. And you like you literally picked Coachella, then you picked words that would rhyme with it after the fact. Like it's just yeah, yeah. It's it's rough. It's rough stuff, man. Um, I will say that like the Wu Tang reunion, one of the laziest titles. Oh, oh, speaking of lazy titles, I almost wanted to cover Wu Block in this episode. I guess in like the wilderness period stuff, but because sometime in between eight diagrams and this, um, there was a technically, I guess Wu Tang. I guess we could cover it in the solo episodes. Never mind. We can cover it's it not, now if you want. I'm ready. Like we could do it now. I, I guess okay. Just brief interlude because it's technically a Wu Tang collaboration. Was. But again, we covered all the other stuff that RZA called Wu Tang and was really Ghostface. So this is another one that's technically Ghostface. Was um, it was called Wu Block. It was, I believe, 2012. It was Ghostface, Raekwon, Styles, and Jada. And it's Ghostface really just cranks these out. Like it's just yet another Ghostface thing. Where, but this is fine. Well, would you say this is still in the period where he's rapping like he gives a shit, or are we in the period where he stopped giving a shit by this point? No, no, no. He's still in this period where he's giving a shit because he stopped giving a shit after 12, re- 12 reasons. 12 yeah, so that came after that. So he's still caring. Yeah, this is uh, the main problem with this one, I would say, is just the beats are really budget and the song formats don't vary too much. Um, but it's it's fun. Like, I mean, I guess, I guess your problem could va- your mileage may vary with regards to how much you like the D block guys. Yeah, I uh, the album is totally fine. It's better than a lot of these other proper Wu Tang albums. Um, some of the beats are pretty basic. Uh, um, Eric Sermon has a beat in there. It's just absolutely fucking. It sounds like a twelve year old could have done it. Um, <laughs> I think the Dima has a really good line about how he feels trapped in 2004. And I think that pretty much covers it. Um, but the first song, uh, crack spot stories, I think that's a good one. Um, and all together. Yeah. Like, I don't know. If you like the Apollo kids, you'll probably like it. Yeah. Period. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point because it's probably just stuff from the Apollo. I forget if, um, off the top of my head, if either of, uh, the D block guys were on, any of the Apollo kids tracks, but I could see it having been from those sessions and essentially goes deciding to spin it off into its own thing because mm-hmm. the whole concept of Apollo, Apollo kids is sort of like ghost version of a Rolodex album where it's like, he tries to out rap, uh, all-star cast, uh, kind of like picking your own producer, like all-star producer list. And yeah, I, I enjoy it. I mean, I haven't really revisited it much. I didn't really revisit it for this pod at all for this podcast, but I, it's, it's definitely the period where ghost, I wouldn't say it's peak ghost because I would consider peak ghost as probably ending around Big Doe, but it's still in ghost invested mode where he can make anything sound compelling. And I have a lot more time for Jada and Styles than a lot of people do. And I feel like this is exactly their lane. So, yeah, I, you know what? Sheik Lausch has a good, has a funny line in, in the album. Uh, she's kissing on my neck. I'm too black for a hickey. I, was, I remember thinking, I remember hearing that being like, all right, that, that's all right. You get a pass from me. Uh, this one has a interest. Also, 
not the place you would think to hear uh, Erica Badu verse, Erica Badu feature when she wasn't exactly given those. She never exactly gives those out, but this is especially a period where you weren't exactly going to see her show up yes. anywhere. You know what? That's a good but, point. That was a highlight. Driving around, it was uh, right. like Erica Badu always has good features. So kind of weird that she just tossed one out on a Woo Block album that no one heard from like 2012, <laughs> December 2012, I think. But yeah, yeah so that, that was another highlight. That's a highlight. The low light for sure is going to be uh, actually the biggest. I think the St- Stella is a really great um, Capadonna. I'm not. I'm sorry. I, was, I got my highlights and lowlights mixed up. My, the lowlights easily Capadonna. Pour the martini. He sounds like he's going deaf. The highlight <laughs> is Stella is a really great story song with a Method Man on it. So and you really hear him in that lane too much. So it's like one of the. It's like uh, if you remember Yolanda's house from Big Doe Rehab. It's like every MC picks up a thread of the story and then right after each other. So definitely, um, if you like narrative ghosts, that's one of those tracks. So it's, it's like a bit of a deep cut album, but it's certainly way better, way more interesting than you know Legendary Weapons or Chamber Music or any of those things where RZA is just. It's, it's better than a better tomorrow, man. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Oh yeah, so yeah. much better. Yeah. We can go back to uh, Better Tomorrow, which is not as good as, you know, the film A Better Tomorrow, the Dan the Otter made her album A Better Tomorrow. It's not as good as A Much Better Tomorrow, the Dan the Otter made her album where he put a bunch of cool Keith verses on that. It's not as good as the fucking Wu-Tang Forever song A Better Tomorrow. The song A Better Tomorrow on here is almost as bad as Miracle, too. That's another one that's so fucking squeaky clean. Like... Uh, and the thing about it is at the very end there's Wu-Tang Reunion which it has this master killer verse on it where he's just talking about being at a barbecue taking camera phone pictures sounds like a fucking boomer dad and everything and it's really hard to dislike you don't want to dislike these guys just being happy and together but it also doesn't feel like they it feels forced like they're making this shit up they're not happy to be together and it comes across in the music mm-hmm. it's so oh, well tight first. Uh, <laughs> Ghostface Killer was in an interview where he's just like he he he's not happy about it. He calls it a RZA album. He's like, I didn't hear it until it came out. Like, um, I don't think anyone's really happy to be there anymore. No, no, they might be happy with the paycheck, of course, and that's fine. Well, right. RZA's been known for being a little fast and loose with the money in the day. Like, I mean, that was part of the reason that they splintered so bad in the first and took so long to get eight diagrams out and like. I think that was a big part of the thing with Kappa as well when he was excommunicated before they let him back in was they said Rizzo was not necessarily known for playing fair with the royalties. It was part of that whole I know what's good for you five-year plan type thing. So so maybe they weren't so happy with the paycheck. But yeah, don't listen to this album. If you're doing a deep dive, maybe for completeness sake, it'll make you appreciate something like Eight Diagrams or Woo Block that much more. But it's... Not worth hearing more than once. Even the stuff that I thought I liked in the past. I cannot believe I gave this a fucking 6 out of 10. That's almost as bad as me saying that uh, Ka sounded like an off-brand DMX. Like, I truly... <laughs> it. Um, yeah, fuck this album. Uh, yeah. There's really nothing in the future beyond that. Um, there was something that made the news that you might have heard about was this little fucking shithead martin screlly uh bought the rights to an album that allegedly was made circa congruent to eight diagrams after eight diagrams uh what was the exact time frame because rym is not super helpful with their uh i mean i'm not about to wiki that or anything but once about i believe this says the time frame is like 2000 2008 to 2013 allegedly was when once a allegedly recorded according to former guest host and friend of the show aaron while this was being recorded so 
the producer behind this was Silver Rings, who I think I started to kind of explain this way back in the beginning about how their influence would lead to something like this. Uh, a fan of the band, band, uh, what is the of the group who got into the circle by sucking up to Riza, who has a very Trumpy sort of way of falling for fucking sycophants who get into his ear. And this would really work out well for him in this case. So got into Riz's ear, got into his circle, led to putting out a solo album of his called I, which is a, we may or may not cover in the solo episode, by the way, because it is kind of relevant and has a bunch of Wu-Tang people on it. I assume neither of you have heard the Silver Ring solo album, right? No, 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 no might no. be worth looking into. It's about an hour. It's got, I think every clan member on it, but most of them are on interludes that feel like paid commercials that Riza told them to do, which is very funny. Um, and there's only like a Jizzaverse and a Rizzaverse. It's it's kind of worth hearing considering his connection that happened through this album. So that came out in six, and he ended up being the producer on what was supposed to be the follow-up to Eight Diagrams. And according to Aaron, during this time on the Wu-Tang Corp website, which I think was their official forum, he would go on the forums and like put up snippets of things, of beats, and like, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? So I guess he was doing that throughout this time period. And the snippets do circulate. I do have them. I did not listen to them. I don't know how many ended up on the album. If you find a bootleg of the album, though, quote-unquote, it's not real. There are multiple ones where it's just people who stole the track list and put their own shit over it. So thanks for wasting my time, guy on SoulSeek. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so Martin Shkreli apparently bought this album at an auction. He's the, I'm sure everybody knows the story of the Pharma Bro, uh, who stole it, who had the album and did not release it. And now I believe the government has the album or something stupid. I, I think, I think something like that, yeah. Yeah. And there's also they also apparently have the original copy of Carter Five. I heard oh, something that like I there. did that I did not know. That, I don't know true? why. You know, I would totally believe Birdman would be investigated, but I don't know why he would have it. I don't know how that came up. But apparently, the original Cash Money Carter Five demos were also seized. I don't know. I could be wrong on that. Anyway, so would this have been any good? Or do we like? Do you have any interest in hearing this? I personally like just. Um, for me personally, I don't, I don't really care how good it possibly could be because if you're going to do some stupid shit, like sell one copy at an auction, then it just, it, it just makes me lose all interest in ever hearing that, that kind of music. So I've yeah. checked out, I don't really ever want to, want to listen to it. If someone actually gave me a copy, I probably wouldn't listen to it. Um, Wu Tang 2000, 2007 to 2013, were they making good music? Not really, not really in the first no, place. Yeah. So. Yeah, on a quality level, I, I actually really like some of Silver Ring's beats. Like, that's part of the reason I was suggesting the solo album. And he actually has a beat tape called Third Chamber Beats, which I think might have been his demo he sent to Rizzo, which was actually really good. So, on a quality level, Ghostface over that sort of stuff, Ghostface from that time period over that sort of stuff, or Math Over could be good. But yeah, like, honestly, probably not worth it. And the idea of Rizzo being such a pretentious asshole, he would sell one copy of something so he could to some museum like honestly the high art rap world crossovers have been pretty regrettable like there's this 100%. jay-z performed his terrible song for six hours at the moma or something which just makes me want to fucking vomit uh, that was picasso baby the most deaf thing sounded kind of cool 
if anybody remembers that, he had some album you could only listen to at an art installation. Like Brooklyn, Brooklyn Museum or something like that. You mentioned it on a... In a, in a previous episode, you mentioned wanting to listen to it. I heard. Oh, yeah, I believe that was the uh, one with uh, with Gozi, with G-O-Z. Yes, that's Cause, exactly right, yeah. Because yeah, we talk about that article with a black, where that stupid article that we shit on for like the whole second half of the episode. <laughs> yeah, so there was that. So, But generally, I feel like there's a whole lot of... Um, when these art crossovers happen, it feels like there's a lot of, there's a grifting aspect to it and yep. just a, both a grifting aspect and an air of that sort of pretense of discrediting hip hop as an art form that we kind of touched on in our previous episode when we we're talking about Yachty, where it's like, this isn't like rap, it's real art. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like that. So, and I feel like that's kind of what's ruining, ruined a lot of what Riz has put out is he wants to distance himself from rap and do real art. He wants to do movies. He wants to do live instrumentation. He wants to turn his back on a lot of what made his old work great. And then you end up with a better tomorrow. You end up with either albums that we don't get to hear because of the dumbass way he, pretentious way he decided to release them or shit that he shouldn't have released like a better tomorrow. Um, last thing that came out under their name was, well, okay, two other things. We have... Well, the saga continues. We wish it didn't, in spite of that one yeah. guy, RYM, who would post all those reviews that just said the Wu-Tang saga continues. And one of my favorite RYM reviews, old RYM reviews of all time, was a .5 review he posted of a Capadonna album, or possibly You God, where he said the saga continues, dot, 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 unfortunately. Because <laughs> all of his other Wu-Tang reviews just said the saga continues, five stars. <laughs> Oh damn! I, I actually I've never I've never seen the, the, that guy. Maybe his maybe his reviews got deleted. That would be a shame. But yeah, they're all the saga. They all say the saga continues. Five stars for Wu Tang stuff, except for one either Capadonna or You God review where it just says the saga continues. Dot dot dot. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, th- this one uh, like what the hooks? What what were we doing? What were we doing? <laughs> well, shout out to Hugh Half, man. Shout out to Hugh Half. Yeah. yeah. Love hey, well, one thing you can say, uh, this is the, the only point I can give, compared to the previous one, two, three, four, five, six, compared to the previous six album covers, this one's better. Genuinely good album cover, yeah, I would say. Um, this is a good album cover, it's got Method Man... Perform- Method Man's trying, he's trying. And that's really about it. Um, yeah. I don't have too much there. I, the track that's called Frozen does not sound, thankfully, which I was kind of worried about after Miracle that Rizzo was just going to straight up make Frozen music from here on out. Um, it does have, it's got that thing that he's trying trying to do now, I think, where Wu-Tang is, you know those like DJ K-Slay rolling X amount deep, where it's like 40 minutes long and they have all like the real rap guys on them. Like, cause he has Chris rivers on here. He's got Sean price on here. Uh, who unfortunately does a random line about trip people who want to dress up in, you know, under other genders clothing. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, never alleged that Sean P was particularly unlike enlightened. And that was a verse of his that we probably could have left buried. Yeah. Um, get that. And I feel like part of what, 
Riz is trying to do is keep the Wu-Tang name alive on these things. And he did that with the New York guys and the older stuff by just putting out like boring, real rap New York guy on here as features. Not that Sean Price is annoying, boring or annoying, but it's just like that sort of genre. And that's not exciting to me. It's like, you don't need to put fucking um, Dave East on your album to get, or uh, J.R. Writer. Like, I feel like that's the level we're getting at with some of this stuff. Like Chris Rivers, well, this is 2017. So I feel like he's not, anymore he's we'll get to it on the solo episodes as what he's doing he also shouldn't be doing that either so i think this is really the last well no we have one more after this but that was like a promotional material thing this could very well be the last quote-unquote wu-tang release um ever it really is like maybe it should be um maybe it should be i feel like they should have stopped a while ago, I feel like RZA should have stopped putting out albums under the group name, under under a version of the group name, because it's not even the full Wu-Tang Clan. A lot of these albums are attributed just simply to Wu-Tang. I feel like they should have just let it go, and he could have done his own solo stuff or do whatever he wants to to make some money on the side and just let everyone be happy. But, no. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess... I, we... I, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, like, you know, like, people need money, so I fully expect there to be, you know, more nostalgic content, you know, next decade, so... Yeah, and I'll listen to it because I'm a sucker, and then I'll hate it, and I'll hate myself for doing it. It's just a, it's just a cycle of being a music listener. Kind of down way to end things. I mean, I will say, <laughs> you know, just real quick, the method stuff on here is worth hearing. That's about it. Uh, yeah, just to not be a complete downer about it, and the cover art is cool. But yeah, I guess he, the way- I mean, and he and Method Man, like, I don't think in terms of a voice, he hasn't really aged all that much. Like, he still has a great rap voice. I feel like that's pretty well, what sucks Method Man is that his actual solo stuff is still really bad. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. All right. Very last thing, and then we'll wrap this one up for this week. Well, I'll come up with a final question and wrap this one up. Uh, of Mike's and Men was an EP that got put out to uh, promote the Joey Badass Starring Vehicle um, documentary series that they're doing on Showtime. And not really um, very interesting. Like, neither of you guys said you didn't listen to it. It's 19 minutes long. It's one of those things that's, you know, just as many skits as there are songs, but thankfully these skits aren't just Rizza being ponderous or whatever. There's um, two Ghostface songs, with uh, one with Raekwon, one with Rizza. Very end uh, is Rizza, Capadonna, and Killa, which is really corny song where they kind of talk about, they kind of rap about their past which is, I guess, supposed to be a promotion for the show. And Killo literally ends it by talking about of Mike's and men coming up on Showtime. Like, he literally rapped. <laughs> <before. laughs> so, oh, yeah. So the, the only really interesting thing on here is the very first Ghostface track where he kind of raps, per, he raps personal details in a way that doesn't really feel like he's trying to rhyme in you and rhyme in the details about the next episode of the show to you and raps about having diabetes, which makes him alongside aside from Rick Ross, the only other rapper I've ever heard do that off the top of my head. And the way he does it too, it's like he has a verse then RZA has a verse then ghost kind of throws in this verse at the very end where it doesn't fit. Like he almost just thought of it and ran back into the booth, which is like a sort of thing. The old ghost would do like there, we'll get more into this in the solo episodes where it's just like, he couldn't stop rapping or he threw in just like, he had so much energy, which is on something like this. Just did. I didn't feel like I was going to get anything like that. So that was a nice touch. The skits are completely useless. I don't know who Cheo is, but I didn't need to hear his half-assed thoughts. Uh, Nas says some 
rambling stuff about how cool Wu-Tang is. It doesn't matter. And yeah. So that's actually the last release under Wu-Tang is this EP is pretty much a, promo- a commercial, which kind of goes full circle. I don't know from, for just like RZA. It makes sense. He's so fully immersed in the Hollywood system. I don't know that it would just be something like this for a Netflix or a Showtime series. This is a really down way to end this episode. I don't know. We ended up, we started so happy about 36 Chambers, and in the end, it's like fucking RZA. Yeah, I think that's the problem with um, some some artists who just keep making music. It's like, if you're going to do a deep dive, eventually you just get burnt out. And then the, the ending note, no matter what it is or how good it might be, it's always like, oh, I wish it was better, or, you know, I wish they stopped earlier. Uh, Enter 36 Chambers is absolutely phenomenal. It is. It's just... Uh, yeah. Probably the best album of 1993. I think, um, Caleb, when you reached out to me, you said, you know, we want to do this podcast because it's like the 30th year anniversary of that album, right? So, yeah. yeah. Which is so, insane. Like, and, it has, yeah. and it hasn't aged a day, I think, honestly. No, so, it hasn't because talent doesn't age. Like, uh, talent like that just doesn't age. Nope. And normally I like to end with a question, but there's really no contest. Like, I mean, we could argue about what the best song is on there, but then we'd be talking for another hour or so. I mean, there's no question what the best release is. It's 36 chambers. We kind of already went over who the best rapper was on that in the 36 chambers discussion. And as far as the best rapper in the clan discussion, that'll have to wait for next week or not next week, but next episode. Oh, (laughs) Not. Well, now they have no reason to listen to the next episode. No, because they know. They know now. <laughs> well, now the next episode was going to be about all nine, about all, well, eight clan members plus the pillage uh, solo explorations. But now it's just going to be a Capadonna solo episode. Now we just dedicated it all to Capadonna. So it, it's two hours of Capadonna. And we'll see if we can fit in like the rest of the 10 minutes. Yeah, we'll see. If, we'll do a lightning round for everybody else. But otherwise, we're going to be covering the Capitalized trilogy. We're going to be covering Barzan. We're going to be covering <laughs> Daka Amazulu. All in great detail. Capadonna, genius annotations, at the ready for that episode. So join us next time. Marshall, it was great having you on. Can't wait to talk Capadonna with you on Wu-Tang Part 2. Until then, we are living off borrowed time. Our intro music is the Borrowed Time Instrumental by Yoon Classic. And our outro music, as always, is Stagnated Pace by Cam Kick. See you next time.
light, perhaps the greatest revelation of all time will dawn upon us.